Well, you know what they say, ride or dies. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. Unless you're a horse. And then you need OE Nutraceuticals. In Canada. Yeah, I'm very excited about this partnership with them. They have amazing products. I know I've tried a few and I know you guys have as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been using OE for quite a while. Um, I think the reason I first started using OE was for their hoof evolution, which has helped Joe's feet grow so much. Like she's usually, she doesn't grow very fast and we've had hoof problems and we kind of, you need growth to fix the feet. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this winter even, usually they grow a lot slower in the winter, but my farrier can't believe how much she's growing this winter. She still needs to be on that regular eight-week schedule. So, That's awesome. I know yeah. I tried the calming paste uh, before a run a couple times, and I still have some in my trailer, and I really liked how Cash was very calm in the warm-up arena, okay. calm in the alleyway, and then through the run, she was really listening to me and waiting for my signals. That would be the OE Compose, yes. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm pumped to be trying the Game Changer for this barrel season Mm -hmm. yeah i used that last year and i noticed a difference yeah yeah Yeah, i I definitely want a joint supplement for this year yeah 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 right now i'm using both secret but i'm going to use the game changer for the competition season for sure yeah so where can the rider dies find oe nutraceutical canada um on facebook it is oe nutraceuticals in canada um on Instagram, she's she's starting up that page, but she doesn't have it going yet. But again, it will be OE Nutraceuticals in Canada. And that's with Jennifer Bobby Robinson. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's, I think uh, she just said message that Facebook page directly yeah. for mm-hmm. OE orders. Yeah. So yeah. Or, yeah. And there. they have a website. So if you Google it, you'll find them as well. Yeah. If you need to look up all the nutritional, like all the ingredients and whatnot, mm-hmm. you want to see the specifics, it's online on their website. Mm-hmm. But if you want to contact her about actually getting some. Uh, message the Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And we, thank you, Jen. Yes. Thank you so much for believing the Horse Poor Podcast. Jumping into our intro, we're talking to a doctor of veterinary medicine today, but let's talk about some things that we do alongside the vet with our horses. Mm-hmm. So what about you, Stevie, a.k.a. Steph W., for those who haven't been tuning in? <laughs> Oh so, my many things. so many things. <laughs> Let's Where do we start? Let's start with like your favorite therapeutic treatment or well, some of your favorite therapeutic okay. treatments that you use in this running season. Um, I, I don't even know. Like Beamer if, blanket. Yeah. Okay. Beamer. So of course I use the Beamer blanket whenever I can. Yeah. Uh, whenever Tarla's around, I'll use that. Um, yeah, and I'll use that before and after runs. It's great for getting her just loosened up before our runs and for recovery after. Mm -hmm. And then if I'm ever down around the olds area, I'll go to Cooley Equine and I'll, um, put her in the water treadmill and the salt spa, the solarium. And this year I'm excited to try the pro scope. Um, what else? I have that. Um, oh my goodness! What brand is that? The Ionic blanket, the Rambo Ionic blanket oh, that yes. I just I just keep on her pretty, pretty much all the time during rodeo season, and gotcha. I'm that, that keeps her feeling really good. Nice. What about you, Steph? Yeah, I thought I noticed a like a difference in how she performed with it's the hands bow. I think that I have though. It's the blue mm-hmm. and 
blue and white mm-hmm. one. Um, Beamer blanket whenever I can. Always do like a vet check at the beginning of the season. Also do Cairo appointment. Um, normally yeah, at the beginning of the season and then maybe like most of the way through or halfway through once we've been working hard. Mm-hmm. I've never really experienced too much with massage, but I do want to look into a little bit more massage and stretching, which mm-hmm. I think we get to do with the podcast here soon. So yeah. Yeah. What about you, Diener? Um, Well, I kind of, to bring myself level down, I always do say a little prayer and it's not even in English. So a lot of people are probably like, what is this girl <laughs> talking about? Cause she's not even speaking. I don't even know what language she's speaking. Anyway. So I do that to like, kind of like level myself down. And then I also, um, I go and I do talk to a horse communicator every once in a while. And I know that totally goes against with like what I just said, but I don't know. It's just something fun to do. And like, Maybe it actually does work. There is some things that Cash told me that I need to change about myself, which number one was taking care of myself because I'm taking care of her. So like, she's like very worried about that. She also told me to get new cowboy boots. So I'm going to do that too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Horse told me too, honey. <laughs> yeah. That, and he was on the phone to Are hear you that. serious? I'm serious. And my, and it's funny because my boots have holes in them. So when Cash said to get new boots, so I have used that a few times. I have used the osteopath, have used chiropractic, um, but I think I'm going to kind of go in like the osteopath direction. Just like I, I've been feeling things with my hands with an osteopath and it was really, really, really cool. And I do believe in chiropractic as well. I just kind of want to try it out and see. Um, I'm going to be feeding a joint supplement to Cash. Um, I actually keep things pretty light. She's been pretty good. I did get the vet check done on her. And yeah, I'm really excited to go to maybe Cooley Equine, but yeah, so I'm just keeping things. Well, we're not really a seasoned barrel horse yet, right? So um, just the regular appointments. So yeah, yeah, no, that's good. Because I think, yeah, we just kind of wanted to touch on what we regularly do and like focus on like even how Dr. Jessica said, like it's a whole team mm-hmm. effort. It like it's not just going to the vet once a year and yeah. you're good to go. Like, mm-hmm. um, that's another thing. Like the farrier, I the think farrier. usually in the summer, okay, I'm a farrier Nazi. I'm like, I track when it is and it's yeah, like, I okay. In the <laughs> I slack in the winter on that yeah. too. Even in the winter, I'm like, okay, those feet are growing. Like we got to get to the farrier and mm-hmm. make sure they're perfect. But like, I've had problems with feet with Joe, so I'm yeah. like... You need to be. We yeah. need to stay on top of this, and all my other horses, we're staying on top of it from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So That's why I won't get the hoof supplement one. I'm like, oh, I know, I'm, I'm like, too yeah. cheap. I don't want to yeah. go to the farrier. I was like, <laughs> literally thinking that, like, dollar signs are popping into my head when you were saying and that. And I'm like, like, like yes, yeah. I get more growth, and we get to fix things faster. Yeah. But yeah, but every yeah. horse is individual and what it needs, yeah. too. That yeah, just exactly. reiterates that point. Yeah. So we talked about how our horses get taken care of, but how do we get taken care of? Because when we get into this episode, Dr. Jessica does talk about taking care of ourselves. So, Steph, what do you do? <laughs> uh, well, last season, like me and Stevie were pretty good. Like we got going in the springtime and we were working out. I think like once summertime hits and the days are longer, it's really hard to get to bed at a decent time to get up for our <laughs> yeah. 6 a.m. workouts. So we slacked on our workouts during the summer, but like we were in good shape going into the season. And, and it's just been like an epic fail in that department right now. And I need to figure my... I, I was talking to Landon about this and he's like, you should like get more into the fitness because you were on a roll there. Yeah. And I said, yeah, I know. But like the difference is with horses, like I want to do, I want to ride. I want to go out and do it. But with working out, usually when I start working out, I'm like, okay, 
I have this many things to do and then I'm done. Like, I'm just looking forward to the end of the workout. Yeah. And he said, yeah, but once you were in that groove, you were craving it. And I was like, I was working out twice a day sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. You need to get into it. Yeah. I haven't had a fire under my butt like that. I think the only way to get me to work out (laughs) is if you have a stick taped to my back with a piece of cheese and olive pizza hanging above and I can just try to run and catch it. That's about about it. So I don't know. Like, are we going to like fix this problem or... What are we going to do here? This podcast now is just taking up like any of that like spare time. Yes. Um, oh, I know when I go to Arizona, which this episode will probably be out when I'm in Arizona, that Cody bikes, like rides her bike everywhere. And oh, yeah. So you'll have so, to do that. Like, yeah, I actually have a hot pink old school bike. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yes. I'm not bringing it with me, but yeah, no, I, I, I should be getting more into working out. I feel like I'm like the boulder that sinks the ship about that. And the more we talk <laughs> about it, maybe the more we are going to keep each other accountable. I know. I'm trying to figure something out. Like I'm thinking like even just like write myself up, self up like a little 30 minute routine yeah. that I don't even have to go to like there's a gym really close to me like there's no excuse like it there's takes one in five. your yard yeah. yeah no it's the next door yard <laughs> takes me like five minutes to get there not even you could jog to the gym I could jog yeah. to the gym but it's just like i don't know yeah just having like an easy little morning routine like i can yeah. literally just wake up and do in my own bedroom or mm-hmm. something just to get back into it that doesn't take any time yeah. yeah and then once you're in the groove then you can expand on it yeah, or we just need to figure out how to be more efficient with this. But once we get to take the podcast on the road, maybe during those driving hours, we can actually get a lot more of this done and then it's not like late nights or whatever. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You'll see Steph and Stevie yeah. on the horse trailer working out and I'll be in the lawn chair eating spits and hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Just oh, kidding. Dear. I'm going to get a picture of Shakira and JLo at the freaking Super Bowl <laughs> and hang that on my wall and be like, be like that. Yeah. Vision Why are board. You such a shitty person. Oh, boy. <laughs> no. So, what else do you do, Steph, then to keep your well last year it was the first time i went to actually get my self chiroed so i was doing a little bit of that during the barrel season i went to the kind of chiropractor where they use just like the gun yeah i'm unsure about i'm unsure about that too i did notice like my back typically hurts at the end of the day if i'm doing office work and um, i noticed when i was going it wasn't hurting quite as bad but then yeah, I don't know. I still, I want to go to another chiropractor that actually physically adjusts me. Oh. But yeah, other than just like the working out, Cairo, I just trying to eat healthy. But yeah, yeah, we're having pizza. We had pizza tonight. So I mean, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've been kind of an epic fail looking after myself lately. Yeah. So I need to. I'm like too immature for the chiropractor. Uh, last time I went and got adjusted, I was laughing the whole time because he was like holding me in certain mirrors and I just. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. and he's just like, oh, my goodness, okay. And <laughs> just like way too immature for that. <laughs> so, what about you, Stevie? What do you oh, do for yourself? Shoot. Oh, my gosh. Anything uh, other than working out because I think we already did that. <laughs> yeah, and I don't really do that. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't get do my I teeth do anything? Either. Like we're just like we this is just a big wake up. We have the health equivalency of a really novid. Like I was pretty good for a while eating healthy and even like do lately. we get supplements? Nope. <laughs> but our <laughs> I drink the rocket electrolytes, like the rocket flavor just because it tastes like a popsicle. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah, I think this is a wake up call. Yeah. <laughs> I, I used to go to the um like get massages and go to the chiropractor because mm-hmm. I did, like, once I, I did have a bad horse accident, I got my horse reared up and fell over backwards and crushed Ooh. me into the gravel. Oh, no. And so I had, like, 
my back is a little bit messed up from that. So I was religiously going to the chiropractor and the massage. But that was when I was working, like not working for myself. So I had benefits. So I don't do that anymore. (laughs) It is expensive. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. A person should probably get massages a little more often too. Yeah. Every once in a while, I get around to crack my back. I know, but like, (laughs) is that the correct way to be? I don't know. It feels good. (laughs) I go sit in the hot tub every once in a while. Yeah, that's probably a nice therapeutic thing for yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or like, if I have a bath, I'll use like the salts. You know, it's like the salt spa for the horses, right? Yeah. Yeah. Epsom salts or whatever. There, it's just not freezing cold. It's (laughs) still hot. Epsom salts. (laughs) Epsom. And that's very rare that that happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know you guys didn't talk about healthcare, but I actually do have healthcare at Dally Lash Co. Really? I oh. do. I trade lashes for sessions. What? <laughs> oh. But no, I actually trade with a, uh, she is a master of Chinese medicine. So she does acupuncture, cupping, and subconscious imprinting, which I uh, kind of talked about in Carly Christensen's uh, episode. But when I go into that session, she sits you down. She reads your energy. Um, I cry. I tell myself I, I am, like, the greatest. So, like, that's what you basically do is you tell yourself how good you are. You start bawling. And then your body feels weird. And then she puts cups on your back. <laughs> Just kidding. But, like, actually, like, that's kind of, like, what happens. And then when she puts the cups on, like, I love cupping. And my back is, like, right, like, black almost because that's how much toxins I almost had in there. But I don't know. Just, like... It's not like it's like voodoo-y stuff because my mom was like a little bit like unsure about that. But it's more so like you're telling yourself like I'm releasing all the uh, bad things that I thought about myself or I'm releasing all this. And you're telling yourself it's okay. And then your body just like feels different. It's like years of like stuff you were self-conscious about and stuff that you were like um, didn't even know that was imprinted in your brain when you were younger that you're feeling today how that affects you so I feel like I really cleared my mind and then now with this cupping and really fixing my back I won't get acupuncture because that's way too scary but um yeah no that's like uh, the only reason why I'm doing it is because I can trade eyelashes for it so (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah so I'm just doing that and I I don't know I should really like I said get massages and stuff but I think that we we all justified at this episode we need to start taking care of ourselves Mm -hmm. so if anyone has any one of our ride or die listeners has tips and tricks to how we fit this into our day or how to fit it in with riding and everything send us a message because we would love to know yeah i remember chatting with jan about this that we have no time management no (laughs) yeah what is time management (laughs) yeah yeah no so yeah we're we're excited to get into this episode with you guys about health for our horses, but we have to make sure that we are being healthy ourselves because we can't be mm-hmm. healthy, strong riders if we are sick and um, just damaged, right? <laughs> well, we're just some sick and damaged individuals. Sick and damaged down to the depths of it. But no, like, like if your back... is being dramatic. No, but if your back is hurt or you're sore, like if there's like damage in your back, right? Yeah. Like you got to yeah. get that fixed or else like your horse is going to feel that, right? Yeah, exactly. Or exactly. if you're sick, like if you're not going to get checkups at the doctor, if you're not doing that kind of stuff, like you're not going to ride, right? Mm-hmm. To your full potential. Well, yes. and even like, muscles, like... You're always stronger on one side. I know last year I started riding, well, I didn't have a saddle, so I had to ride bareback or I couldn't ride. Mm-hmm. And like, I first, the first time I tried to lope a circle, like even a big circle to the left, I was falling off. Like I couldn't, like I could do it to the right, but to the left, it was impossible. Really? And so 
I was like, hey, I'm going to get stronger. And so I persisted. And by the end, I was able to lope a barrel size circle both directions and stay on. Nice. But I it's just crazy. You don't notice those things un- until you actually... Put to the test. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I actually love riding bareback. Like, I rode mm-hmm. bareback four days straight in the mountains with, like, eight to ten hour days. Like, yeah. up and down hills. Like, just legit it's bareback. So it's good, so yeah. cool. But, yeah. Thanks for listening to this intro. And we're excited for you to listen to this episode. We're so excited to bring you Dr. Jessica Romano. She's a doctor of veterinary medicine with a special interest in rehabilitation, lameness, and racetrack medicine. We've all had the pleasure of working with Dr. Jessica Romano and can't wait for you guys to hear some of the great information that she has to offer. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. Hey, Jessica, how's it going today? Good. How are you guys? Oh, pretty good. Yeah, we're ready and excited to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> Got lots of questions. Lots of questions to ask a vet, that's for sure. We, we're very excited to have you on, and thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. So we're ready to get this rolling. Yeah, no, um, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. <clears throat> so, Jessica, did you have your sights set on being a vet from, from a young age? I did. I probably... I knew I was going to be a veterinarian. Well, I knew I was going to be a veterinarian my whole life. I think I was five. My parents said when they, I actually started saying it. I was really lucky. I grew up with really animal-oriented parents who also had a really great relationship with our local veterinarian. So from a really young age, I was exposed to like the important role that a veterinarian can play in animal welfare and health. Um, so then in my whole life, I was just really interested in animals. Uh, my mom's kind of a crazy animal lady, so we had, like, ducks and chickens and goats and <laughs> llamas and cows, and I even had a pet pigeon. Like, what? we had a lot of everything. A pigeon? Those are terrifying. <laughs> <A> pigeon. <laughs> yeah, no, we had a pet pigeon. Um, and then my dad was into thoroughbred chuck wagons, mm-hmm. uh, so then that influenced me on the horse thing. And when I was, I had a pony, and then when I was about... Oh, I don't know, eight years old, they got me a 10-day-old bottle baby from a PMU barn that had broke its leg, and I don't know, it came, the baby came to me, and so the worst thing you can do is give an eight-year-old a <laughs> bottle baby to spoil, but yeah. I love him, and his name's sister, and I still have him, he's out at my parents' place, and Aww, so then as awesome. I got older, I definitely got a lot more passionate about horses, Yeah. Um, but when I started veterinary school, I don't think my goals were set on being an equine-only veterinarian. I really wanted to be, you know, like that mixed animal practitioner who sees a little bit of everything. Like, okay. my dad always had James Harriet books when I was a kid. So I think that kind of influenced me. And then when I started taking, like, the performance medicine, um, equine sports medicine classes and uh, did my practicum, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is the only thing I ever want to do. So yeah. I... Uh, so then I, after graduation, I did an equine internship, and then I did uh, four years in a equine sports medicine practice. Oh, wow. Yeah. So where did you go to school, and what was your post-secondary experience like? So I did, um, I did a full degree in biological sciences at the University of Alberta campus in Tamworth at Augustana. Um, I wasn't, I came from Disbury, which is a small town, so I wasn't really keen on going to, like, a huge city. 
So I thought Tamrose was like a really good um, transition kind of place for me, and I really liked it there. Um, and then when I finished that, I applied to the University of Calgary um, veterinary program, and I was the third class that went through the program. So it was still a pretty new program, and I mean, it's gone, there's been quite a few cycles since, but it just mm-hmm. seems to be getting um, better. And they've got, um, this year, they're admitting 50 students. So the program oh, wow. almost doubled in size since I was there. They took 32 in my year. Yeah, oh, that's wow. amazing. Competitive. Yeah. I, I Yeah, I toured that place. I think maybe that was like when I was in school to be a tech, and it looked pretty amazing. Yeah, it was really neat. And the, the one thing that makes the University of Calgary was kind of like a trendsetter is in most academic institutions have a kind of teaching hospital. So you go to school for three years um, and like get all your veterinary sciences, and then you do like a year practicum as like a student doctor. And most facilities, they do it all in a teaching hospital. So you're taught by kind of a hierarchy. So there's like the students and then you have like your interns and then your residents um, and then all your clinicians and then all the specialists. Mm-hmm. Uh, the UFC is a little bit different. They have what they call a distributed learning uh, hospital. So I actually got to go to just regular practices and experience oh, yeah. what veterinary medicine really is like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because when you're in those, like, teaching hospitals, you have all the specialists there. So you get a lot of, like, really unique specialty-type cases come through. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, it's maybe not what you see in the real world yeah, when you work true. in just, like, a small rural community. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of neat. Um, and it was also really good because it allowed me to only have to take four weeks with small animals for my <laughs> entire year. So yeah. that was a win for me. Anything to avoid dogs and cats. I tried my <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, so there were 32 students. Um, I can't remember how many applied for my year. So in in Canada, veterinary schools are provincially funded. Um, So the provincial government pays for seats at different schools. So the only two options that were available when I was going to veterinary school was Saskatoon or Calgary. Uh, Calgary took 32 spots from Alberta, and Saskatoon took 20 Albertan spots. Before the start of the University of Calgary, there was only 20 spots for all of Alberta each year. So in my year, between the two schools, there was like 50 students that got in. I think there was close to 300 applicants. And then they whittled it down to 120 for the interview. And then 32 of us got to be accepted into the class. Wow. Which is pretty awesome. (laughs) That is so awesome. Wow. Yeah, so, I don't know how I got in. It was like pure <laughs> luck, I think. But no, you I must really, have really, really grateful. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Actually, yeah, I think it like all works out. Like I think you know you're meant to do things, and I just yeah. always knew that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. So, can you tell us a bit about where you're working now and what you're focusing on? So, my main career focus is on equine sports medicine, um, and I also have a real interest in equine rehabilitation. Um, I'm currently uh, practicing out of the Alberta Veterinary Center in Red Deer, so I work with Dr. Kachik there. Um, It is a mixed animal practice, but primarily it's equine caseload. I primarily just do the equine out of there, as well as Dr. Rick. Um, So my main kind of day-to-day focus is weighness exams um, and getting all our equine athletes, you know, ready to compete making sure we're preventing injuries and keeping them going. Um, I travel all over Western Canada. So I, while I have a home base, I also have a ambulatory component of my practice. Uh, so that's how I get to go all over the place. And then in the summertime, 
I am the official veterinarian of the World Professional Chuck Wagon Association. And a lot of those places also have pro rodeos. So I'm able to help uh, my, my pro rodeo clients at the same locations, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm not on the road, you can find me in the clinic. Um, and then on Tuesdays, I get to work out of uh, Cooley Equine uh, with Katie Imler and her crew, um, which I really like because I like to get to be able to follow through cases. And that's what I think is really neat about the rehab side of things is we get to watch, you know, the progression of, you know, healing. Yeah. Um, so that's really, like, really, like, satisfying as opposed mm-hmm. to I really get satisfaction out of seeing, you know, your guys' horses and, like, helping with, like, maintenance and prevention of things. But we maybe don't see immediate results or it's not something that we get that, you know, that satisfaction from that date. Whereas mm-hmm. at the rehab center, like, every day we watch them you know, get stronger and heal and get closer to coming back into performance, which is really nice. Yeah. Um, I find it really rewarding to have a horse that comes in with a really poor prognosis and they'll get to follow that case for, you know, one year and then get to see it back in competition. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So what kind of services does the Alberta Vet Centre offer? So we're a complete uh, equine hospital. So we do have uh, four in-clinic stalls. Uh, we can treat any animals medically. Um, we have an equine surgery, so we're able to offer, um, you know, basic surgeries such as, you know, castration, splint bone removal, uh, bone sequestrums, and then we also do a lot of orthopedics. So uh, we can do arthroscopic surgery, uh, like going into joints, cleaning them out, cleaning up the cartilage, taking out chips. Uh, we do colic surgeries. Um, and then have the ability to take care of them in our facility, which is really nice. Um, that's something that I didn't have at my other practice. And then okay. something that I really like about being with Dr. Rick at the Alberta Vet Center is anybody who knows me knows that I hate reproductive medicine. <laughs> I don't want to do it. Like, I do not. I, like, say that I can't even palpate a mare because I don't want to get stuck doing it. <laughs> which, like, Rick is, like, my yin to my yang because he is all about reproduction. So he is the guy. He's got um, him and his wife, Lori Jamison, have Conduct Victory Farm um, just outside of Sylvan Lake. And the Alberta Veterinary Center has a reproductive facilities there. So last year, I think Rick probably bred about 270 mares uh, between, you know, fresh cooled semen, uh, frozen semen, a lot of embryo transfer. But the really cool thing that he has in the works is he has the only ICSI lab in Canada. So that's essentially you know, in vitro fertilization for horses. Mm-hmm. So typically with our performance horses um, that are still working and we're trying to get babies off when we do embryo transfers. So we breed the mare, um, flush out the embryos, at the, you know, in the cycle and then implant them into a recipient mare. Mm-hmm. With the ICSI lab, Rick has mastered the technique of doing like ultrasound guided, um, like egg retrieval from the mare. So the mare doesn't actually have to get bred. And then they take those eggs and they breed them in a dish with one semen. So the ICSI dose of semen is way lower than like what we'd have to put into a mare. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think he said, he told me one frozen semen stick makes 200 ICSI pools. Wow, wow. that's so amazing. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So for some, of our, for some of our stallions that are no longer with us, it really opens the doors of ensuring that we can keep their offspring coming mm-hmm. for years to come. Um, and then they develop the embryos in the lab, and then they put them into recipient mares. So there's labs doing it in the States. So, like, Weatherford yeah. and Colorado have been doing a lot of it. But Rick's will be the first in 
Canada, and he's he's had it for a year now, and so this will be our first, hopefully, successful summer of implanting those embryos. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So, do you think he would want to come on the pod and talk about some of that with us one day? Absolutely. He's like, <laughs> oh, that'd be cool. loves that'd talking be about that stuff. Okay, that, yeah, that'd be awesome. Then yeah. we can get in-depth with it. Yeah, that'd be yeah, really he can cool. tell you way more stuff, and he'd probably be like, what I told you is like just the tip of it. Yeah, oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, but that's really good to know for sure. Mm-hmm. So, we talked about other people's horses, but do you have any of your own? I do. I'm a little bit of a horse hoarder. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So the only problem with my horse hoarding is that I actually don't own any land. So really, it's my mom and dad's problem. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so I have my old retiree, still Twister, that I got when I was eight years old. Mm-hmm. Um, but then throughout the years, I've collected a couple ex-chuck wagon horses that weren't even my dad's chuck wagon horses that he has retired <laughs> because I like fell in love with them and then I have um I own a couple wagon horses that my dad uses so one of them is Delta Monarch and when I first graduated veterinary school I was totally green and didn't know what I was doing and uh Ray Crotto owned Delta at the time and he was like a really good supporter of letting me like hone my craft and practice my skills and thankfully, Delta had a few problems. So I, like, every joint injection I ever injected for the first time was on that horse. So I kind of followed his career. And when Ray sold out, I couldn't afford to buy him at 20000 mm-hmm. Um, But the following year, I got an opportunity from the driver who bought him, who knew about how much I loved him. And so I got to keep him. So I always yeah. knew that I would, you know, make sure that he had a good retirement. He's mm-hmm. still active and loving to race. So when he's done when he tells us he wants to be retired, I'll have him for life. But until then, he's on the right lead on my dad's chuck wagon outfit. Oh, cool. Um, and then I got into racehorses in 2017. And then I think it was my way of, like, having a horse, but I didn't have to actually do much with it because you have a <laughs> trainer and everyone who does it. Yeah. Um, so my my first race horse I bought, Too Bad Charlie, raced at Northlands and Grand Prairie. And when he was done, he went to another wagon driver, and I ended up getting to buy him back last summer. And so he's now on the right wheel on my dad's chuck wagon outfit and like a superstar. Oh, cool. Um, I have a current racehorse that um, my trainer, Mike Tapworn, and I own together. His name's Respect the Shot. We bought him out of Century Downs this fall. And I'm actually going to Saskatoon this weekend to pick him up so that we can take him to Cooley so he can start his uh, conditioning program um, there with Katie. And then he'll go back and race at uh, the racetrack in Saskatoon. He'll go, he'll go back the middle of April and start galloping. And then he'll be racing by the end of May, start of June. Okay. Ooh. That would be, ex- that'd be <laughs> then, exciting. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I like racehorses. Um, I like speed horses. I like the like excitement of it. Um, and I, it, it's just fun. I actually have never been able to watch any of my horses race. <laughs> I've never been able to go. But I oh, watched on like videos. And like, I'm really lucky because my horse trainer, Mike, he's just awesome. And he'll... Uh, he keeps me in the loop, so I feel like I'm kind of part of it. Yeah. And by bringing the horse um, to Cooley for the next month, I get to see him and, like, be part of, like, you know, the conditioning part of it. So I'm yeah. really excited about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I do, this fall, I bought a riding horse. So I own, a, actually, a barrel horse. His name is oh. Remington Memories. Yeah. I, I don't run barrels, and I have no intention to ever do it. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> I, uh, I'm a sucker for falling in love with horses. And he was a... Uh, <laughs> He was a racing quarter horse that, as a two-year-old, won the Canada Cup security. Okay. So he's, like, built like a thoroughbred and built for speed. And 
Carletta DeWitt bought them and he had, or she had them and barreled them. And when I did a pre-purchase, I was like, I love this horse and I want to own them. But I couldn't <laughs> afford to own them. So, you know, things worked in my favor and I got to have them in November. And yeah. he can be a fire-breathing dragon and I love them. And the great thing about it is Charlie put such a great start on them and foundation that even though he's meant to be a Wendy barrel horse and that's what he's been doing. I mean, he's nine. He still has lots of life in him, but mm-hmm. she gave him such a good foundation that I can just ride him around the arena and it's awesome. That's so that's good. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like better than wine. You know, I just get on him, ride him around. That's lots good. Lots of endorphins yeah. that way too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. And you don't you know, think like, you'll I ever just, play around with the barrels? I don't know. I, uh, maybe like when I was younger, I rode all the time, but then I like went to school for like 10 years yeah, and then was like really focused on my career. So I, I haven't mm-hmm. rode much in like, you know, 15 years. Yeah. So it's just kind of getting back into it. And I haven't even loved him yet. I've had him since November and we're just walking and trotting. Yeah. That's, <laughs> well, that's good. Right, Get too. comfortable on him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have to relearn those muscles. Like, oh yeah. my gosh, I don't know how you guys do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, yeah, we're doing it all the time. So I'm it's... always scared after winter time to make the first run. I'm like, oh, do I remember how to? Yeah. My horse gonna leave me behind? Yeah. Like, Am I getting backed off? Yeah. Yeah. Mom is just like building that balance back when you haven't yeah. done it for so long, and so you know. But it's good. Like I think it's important to like to be involved in like equine sports and activities because I understand what you guys go through, even though yeah. I'm not at the same level. Mm-hmm. But it's still the you know, the same care, the same focus, the same attention to detail when it comes to like your horse, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. And talking about performance horses and uh, what you do for all of our performance horses, um, when you get uh, routine exams, do you differ your recommendations based on what discipline the horse um, is being used for? Um, yes and no. Every horse should have a starting baseline no matter what discipline you're in. So that includes having, you know, proper farrier care, uh, well-balanced mouth, mm-hmm. you know, good nutrition, a general health exam, and a baseline soundness. And then after that, I kind of feel like the programs become tailored to that horse's discipline, its performance level, its age, as, you know, they all have different needs and different risks of injury depending on the sport that they do. Hey, Rider Dies, if you haven't already, make sure you check out OE Nutraceuticals in Canada for clinically proven and tested supplements. And be sure to use our code HORSEPOOR for 10% off. So speaking of maintenance on our horses, joint maintenance seems to be one of those topics with a little bit of stigma around it. Uh, We'd like to dive into joint care and awareness. When should we start monitoring and checking the joints in our horses? I think it's a concern that we should be looking at from the time they're full when we start looking at like development um, issues like OCDs and nutritional factors to prevent bicytis, which is like inflammation in the growth plate. Mm-hmm. Um, or even in some babies, we see development of septic joints that can then, you know, ruin or hinder their athletic performance in the future. Um, and then I think we should continue monitoring joint health through all stages of their career. Mm-hmm. You know, from the young horse that's just starting to learn their job to the active competition horse, to the old retiree. Um, they all have different levels of care that are required. Um, but at the end of the day, they really need to be thinking about joint health and yeah. how it's really a lifelong consideration in our horses. Okay. So when you're talking about monitoring them from that young of an age, would you just, like, would you want to do x-rays every year or just kind of 
do stuff like that if you see a problem? Well, it kind of depends on the discipline and what they're going for. So most racehorses, before they go to the track, it's to start galloping. Um, we'll x-ray their knees to make sure that their, their joint plates have closed so that okay. we're not causing damage. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to OCDs, um, usually if someone notices like a joint swelling, um, you know, in a younger foal or a yearling or coming into a two-year-old, like then we'll like examine it. Um, two-year-olds that are starting to be broke or worked with three-year-olds that all of a sudden develop like a unilateral joint swelling, we almost always x-ray to look for OCDs. Mm-hmm. And then if you're buying a young horse, it's not a bad idea to get a set of pre-purchase x-rays just so you know what you're dealing with already before you buy it. So what what would you x-ray in that exam? Like knees and hocks and or what? Yeah, you're what probably, yeah. uh, probably the most common kind of areas that we see OCDs in are going to be hocks and stifles okay. and then set Okay. And so... If we do find an OCD, there's certain ones that we don't really worry about. We let them be there and they don't bother the horse. But then mm-hmm. there's other OCDs that they need surgical intervention. So mm-hmm. then we go in, we do surgery, remove remove the defects in the cartilage, and then bring the horse back into a competitive program. But if, if you're buying the horse especially, it's a lot better to know that it's clean than buy it and then find out you need to do surgery. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you already own the horse, a lot of times people just kind of see how it goes. They'll either x-ray them before they start them or they'll just pay attention to them. And if they have any swellings, once they start working, that's usually when we start to see it and then we investigate. Okay. So what, like for that OCD, what is the general prognosis on that when they're that young? It really site-specific. So depending on where the cartilage defect is or the chip is, Okay. Um, really depends on where what the prognosis for athletic return are there's yeah. some of them that we look at and really this horse has no prospects or there's some that with surgical intervention they're gonna have a healthy athletic career mm-hmm. and then there's some of them where we don't need to do anything and it's never going to hinder them okay. but it's really site specific yeah so speaking of hawks and stifles, can we just talk a little bit about, like, I know I've experienced this a bit with my mare, but just like the domino effect and how we do need to address joint soreness or, or else it can turn into other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely think that the old school train of thought was you should never inject a young horse, um, that you shouldn't, you know, like they don't need it till they're older. And that's, that might be true in the sense that we might not have osteoarthritis until they're a little bit older, but I think when they're learning to use themselves, that they sometimes can have inflammation and pain in those joints that if we don't affect can cause kind of a cascade where you go from a willing five-year-old, he starts to get a little bit of hawk sore. Now he doesn't want to turn the barrel properly and, or he changes his stride. Now our stifles are being displaced. So then we end up seeing, you know, stifle and sacroiliac pain and back pain. And like you said, it's kind of a domino effect. Whereas if we catch it early enough, we can treat the one affected area, the primary problem, and then, you know, work with that horse to, you know, get it back into using, you know, its lower leg appropriately and, you know, striding out underneath itself. And, you know, maybe we do some exercise with it as well. It's not always injections, mm-hmm. um, but there's definitely different things that we can do to treat. So we don't end up having horses that are just sore everywhere. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is, is diagnosing, you know, is it just a maintenance thing? Like 
he's learning to use his hocks, he's learning rasping, a lot of that horse, and now it's talk sore, or do we have, you know, the start of a, a problem that we need to diagnose? So that's why I really recommend, you know, at least once a year, get a soundness evaluation done on our performance horses, so we kind of have an idea of where they're at, and we can kind of monitor, and then that way it's halfway during the season, you're like, something doesn't feel right, we have kind of a baseline to go back on, mm-hmm. and be like, you're right, like, now your horse is, you know, isn't moving the same or has developed an issue and we can try and like troubleshoot why. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any known preventatives that can be used at an early age to decrease the likelihood of needing in joint injections in performance horses? Well, I don't think there's actually like, there's one proven preventative that's going to like stop osteoarthritis from forming. Mm -hmm. I think it's like really important to kind of work with your veterinarian. Uh, One way to look at it is, there's two things that can cause arthritis. So you can have abnormal forces on a normal joint, or mm-hmm. you can have normal forces on an abnormal joint. Okay. And unfortunately, we see both of those in performance horses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you're working with your healthcare team, it's really important, you know, to produce and maintain a healthy horse. But there's not, I can't tell you there's like one thing, if you feed your horse or give your horse, it's not going to develop any of those issues. Yeah. And so I think it, um, I think that for me, personally, and maybe other people would disagree, I think it comes down to not overlooking the importance of conditioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a properly Love conditioned that. horse will help to prevent excessive wear and tear on the joints due to compensation. So I think that's a huge factor for me. I Just because a quarter horse will come out of the field and smoke a 14th you know, second run on a hang on, I don't know. Like, I guess it depends on what size of arena you're in, but you <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. No, we, <laughs> we, because, yeah, we get you. <laughs> you know, if it, you know, pull it out of the field and it can do it, it doesn't mean it should. Yeah. And I see, I do, like, I have a lot of clients that are, like, they're really proud of this fact. Oh, I haven't rode a much. Just pull it out of the field and we pulled a check. But yeah. then, I hate to say it, but those are the horses that in two, three weeks after that, well, it's not turning anymore. It doesn't want to stop, you know, and they're yeah. sore. But they're sore all over because they just weren't conditioned. So it's like, if you want to start training for marathon and you're not a runner, if you get off of the couch right now and you go and run 10K, your ankles are going to hurt, your knees are going to hurt. Mm-hmm. And I think our yeah. horses are the same. So then we start confusing, do we have like real joint pain? Do we have muscle pain? But it's all kind of intertwined. Yeah. I also, when I have horses that have like a previously diagnosed condition, I'll do pre, you know, season check up on it and maybe treat that affected area because we have a diagnosis and we want to make sure there's no inflammation in that spot before we start working it on our other horses that have no real previous problems i don't mind checking them like right out of the field in the spring but i i rarely will inject a horse without it having at least you know 45 to 60 days of conditioning on it because i don't think you can do a real fair assessment on a horse that's you know come out of the field and you made you maybe, you know, made a run on it or worked it really hard and it's not fit. Yeah. You know, if we strengthen if we strengthen the muscles, we strengthen the core, you know, maybe that horse isn't hawk sore anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's definitely horses that I inject in the spring before we do anything or, you know, we manage it medically or we manage it with shockwave or, you know, lots of different approaches to, you know, getting a sound horse. Mm-hmm. But when we're just looking for... You know, like, oh, it's not doing it. I like to see them fit. I like to see where we're at once they're in condition. Um, obviously, I don't want to condition a horse that's lame, but if it's just stiff behind, sometimes just, 
you know, working it and getting it fit takes care of a lot of our problems. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I also have a question, um, kind of going back to the foundation of a horse. Uh, when you're starting it, making sure it's square, its body's carrying itself properly, um, it's able to move correctly and not dropping in any way, shape, or form. Is that going to really help how their joints hold up? Yeah, I think, um, there, you know, there's there's so many different factors that can affect, you know, a horse's soundness. One of them being confirmation. Mm-hmm. You know, a horse with poor confirmation might have more stress on certain joints than a horse with better confirmation. Um, that being said, I have lots of horses in my practice that I look at and like, how does this thing win? How does this thing run and be competitive? But they still do it, even with faulty yeah. confirmation. But we, you know, we pay attention to making sure that we don't have more compensation issues because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the more fit your horse is and the stronger abdominal core it has, the the more support it has to its framework, so the less stress that comes down onto your joints. So I'm really always getting after my clients about making sure that, you know, even though it's not fun to do things like long trotting and trotting over poles mm-hmm. and doing stretches and belly lifts and, you know, tail tucks, you know, I think it's important that we do those things because the fitter they are, the stronger their abdominal core, the more top line they have, the better framework they have to support their bodies when we're asking them to make these really agile, fast movements. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about fitness and they need to be in shape and um, just for their joints and everything, what do you suggest? Like, do you suggest riding them on lots of different terrain, like deep versus hard ground and getting them um, fit like that as well? I think so. I think cross training is okay. important. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's nice to try them on different substrates, you know, for balance, right? Like, so hard ground versus soft ground, um, cycles, you know, doing hill work, going up the hills, zigzagging mm-hmm. back down it. Um, backing up in hand, um, you know, to make them do it. And then I also think it's important, um, if you've ever had a horse that's ever needed any, like, sacred iliac work done, or if we think it's, like, weak behind there, like, I'll, I'll give you guys drills, like, what we call them SI circles, but it's just, you know, riding them correctly, right? So yeah. if they're, if they're not frame, if they're, you know, popping their hip out when we get to a smaller circle, well, then let's not just keep doing it. Let's take them back to a bigger circle where we can get them where they're riding straight underneath us. Mm-hmm. And we can build those muscles, right? Yeah. Because asking them to do something that's hard for them without building up to it, not helping the problem or just making all those compensation issues work. Yeah, for sure. Have you guys checked out Level Up Apparel yet? If not, check them out on our Instagram or their Instagram and use horsepoor at checkout to save yourself 10%. So when it comes to joint injections... A lot of people kind of ha- are not sure about joint injections. They've heard good and bad things about them. Um, what are the different types of injections, the different products used, and what is the difference between them, and how does that affect the joint? So there's not every joint injection is going to be the same. It's going to be dependent on the horse, and that's where having that relationship with your, your veterinarian who has experienced in, in particular therapies is really helpful. They can help design like a tailored individual program for your horse. Um, so I guess I'll kind of give you the basics okay. of some of the different things that are like available to us to use. So we have the, when people talk about joint injections, I think the most that comes to mind is like cortisone steroids. 
mm-hmm. everyone's like, oh, like don't put steroid in there. It's so bad yeah. for the joint. And, I mean, years ago, a paper came out on Depomedrol that said it caused all this damage. I mean, in 2012, a Nashville at the AEP meeting, they kind of debunked that. The study that said that was a really poorly designed study. So it was hard to paint all joint injections evil based on the work of a faulty paper. Mm-hmm. Um, I That being said, you probably won't find me ever putting just straight steroid into the joint. Mm-hmm. I don't think that we get really long effects of it. So the steroids, like shutting off the immune system, shutting off the pain receptors in that joint so that, you know, it doesn't hurt. Um, but I, I, I mean, I've done it at the track where they don't use hyaluronic acid. And I feel like, you know, 30, 45 days, they're like, oh, the horse is a little bit out again. I really like pairing. If I'm going to use a steroid, I want to use it with hyaluronic acid, which is kind of like synthetic joint fluid. And it works on the synoviocytes of the lining of, of the joint capsule. So when the capsule gets kind of angry and irritated and inflamed, the body is like, let's make more joint fluid. So if you've ever watched me do a joint injection on a horse with a really inflamed joint, you put the needle in and you get this really watery joint fluid come out mm-hmm. of it. And that's the sign of unhealthy joint fluid. So we put hyaluronic acid back into the joint capsule to try and take out that inflammation in the joint capsule so it can make healthy joint fluid again. Mm-hmm. And then I often pair that with, with a steroid in there to, you know, help with the pain control as well. Um, so that's kind of like our basic joint injection. And not all joint injections when you're comparing between vets are the same. Everybody has different recipes of what drugs they're using. Or, you know, there's even controversy of how many spots you inject in the hawk between vets. So yeah. I think when you're when you're talking to them, it's like that's where it's important to have a veterinarian that you're, you work closely with. Um, the other thing is that there are some side effects to some of the steroids we use. So in our easy keeper horses, horses that are prone to founder, we're going to use a completely different recipe than what we're going to use in a, in a you know, more metabolically healthy horse yeah. to reduce those side effects of founder. So, you know, when you have a relationship with a veterinarian and they know the health history of your horse, they know what to put in, right? Like, yeah. they can work with you to kind of tailor that. Um, the other thing, um, so kind of like going up the scale of different things we can do. So there's different weighted molecular, like heavier molecular weighted hyaluronic acid that can be used in joints. So there's like Legend, which is what I use a lot in my routine injections. And then um, there's there's heavier molecular weighted stuff like High 50. And then there's also a polyacrylamide, which is like, um, I call it kind of the equivalent of like joint silicone for the joint. So um, that one's called Noltrex. So in some of our more diseased cases or ones that have a lot of cartilage degradation or, you know, different reasons, we'll put Noltrex in it. Um, and then when we go away from like, the, the steroids and hyaluronic acids, there's a whole realm of more natural joint injections. Um, mm-hmm. So in my practice, I do a lot of platelet-rich plasma. So we spin the blood from the horse and we take off the growth factors in the platelets. And then when we inject it back into the joint with foam needle, we activate those platelets so we get um, a lot of healing. Um, I don't always get a lot of pain control with it. So a lot of times I'll use PRP in more you know tendon injuries, um, acute lameness is problems that we're trying to heal where they're going to be on rest and time off. Okay. I have used this quite a few joints um, with success or like the vicular bursas have had really good luck with uh, platelet plasma. Um, and then the other one that we spin from their own blood again, is called IRAP. So we pull 60 mils of blood, we put it in a special tube with these fast seeds, and then we incubate it at 30, it's over the body of 37 degrees for 24 hours or for 16 to 21 hours. 
spin it, and then we pull off what we call IRAP. It's like the body's own natural steroid. Um, so when you put steroid into a joint, it's binding to those pain receptors. Mm-hmm. So when we do IRAP, it's kind of the same thing, but we're using, we've, we've multiplied the horse's natural kind of steroid, and now we're injecting it back in. With IRAP, I tend to do multiple um, series of it. So it's like the hyaluronic acid and steroid will do one injection. When we're using um, IRAP, a lot of times we'll use like a series of like three because every time we inject it in there, we're binding to more of those pain receptors. Okay. Um, and the one cool thing about IRAP that's where it's different than the HA and steroid combo is studies have shown that it does have some effect and healing benefits to the cartilage, right? So if we're worried about cartilage degradation, IRAP's a really great product to use. Interesting. Yeah, that's and then, cool. Yeah, I didn't know there were so many different kinds. Yeah, yeah, there's lots so of different, many different kinds. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, that's awesome. <laughs> so a lot of information. information. Yeah, that's great. It's good. And there's even, there's even more than that. Really? <laughs> we're just scraping yeah. the surface of injections. Yeah. But uh, that... Sorry, Sorry. I, I heard the like t- injecting blood and spinning it and re-putting it back, and they actually use that in people as well, mm-hmm. like for dentists and stuff like that. So that's pretty cool. They use that on horses as well. Yeah, yeah. It, it, they've got a lot of studies on it in in people. Um, when I first when we first started using PRP, it was like geared off of what the natural sports medicine guys were doing for athletes down in Calgary. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a practice called Paradigm that does a lot of like PRP. Um, treatments and things like that and then it became a little bit more mainstream in horses I mean there's still not a lot I mean there's a lot of studies out there but I mean there's still people who like argue the efficacy and things like that I mean anecdotally I can tell you that I've had really good success with it and there's mm-hmm. times that I've used IRAP or PRP and maybe I, I didn't see it the results I wanted but I mean you gotta remember every individual is different mm-hmm. every yeah, exactly. injury every arthritis none of it is the same so that's why I stress to people like having that relationship with your veterinarian, having someone who knows what your expectations are for the horse. Like that's yeah. my biggest thing. When someone comes to me and I've never worked for them, I need to know what their expectations is for their horse mm-hmm. because reality versus expectation might be totally different mm-hmm. based on what kind of injury or what kind of arthritis or what kind of maintenance we're looking at for this horse. The next biggest thing I find that we need to talk about the first time I ever meet someone is budget. Right. So depending on what your budget is, we're going to, I'm going to help you get to where you want to be. But if I know where your budget is, we can try and pick, you know, pick and choose and kind of tailor our program to be as economical as we can be. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, we try to be economical in every case, but I mean, if we we have a really tiny budget, we might not do as much IRAP as versus just trying the steroid in HA, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then knowing what your timeline is for when you want to be in competition or when you need the horse back is also going to play a role in those decisions. And I, uh, that's where I just think having a relationship. And that's where I'm very lucky in the kind of practice that I have that I get to form those connections with the clients and with their horses. And I mean, I've worked on some of these horses, you know, for five, six years, see them, you know, multiple times a year and you kind of, you can follow them. And so it kind of bothers me. I follow those like those Facebook forums. And when I see people on there asking about where to get the cheapest joint injection, it drives me crazy. Yeah. It's not about the cheapest. It's about finding what works for your horse yeah. and having the ability to work with your veterinarian to make it fit in your budget. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Every time you go to a new veterinarian, you have to start from scratch. <laughs> yeah. Totally. And it's, it's so much easier. And I think it's actually probably cheaper 
for you guys in the long run to like develop that relationship where you don't have to start from the beginning. You don't need to redo all the x-rays and I mean, but at the same time though, I think collaboration is really important too. I think all, every veterinarian has their own unique perspective that they Mm -hmm. can offer to a case. And so then that way, like I work together with all of their sorts of veterinary professionals, as well as, you know, our body workers and our chiropractors and barriers, because it takes a whole team to get some of these horses, you know, to the NFR. Like it's not just one person. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So with those like uh, more common injections, if you do have to do them, what's just like a general rule of thumb for how much time you would normally recommend off after? Like yeah, and it kind of depends. Samples. Yeah, it depends on what we're injecting them with and what the protocol is and everything. If we're just doing, yeah. let's say, routine maintenance on Hawking cycles with like a hyaluronic um, steroid combination, mm-hmm. um, usually they're on an anti-inflammatory for two to three days. And then anywhere between four to seven days off before we get back into work. Okay. And then I always tell people it takes about 10 days for you to see the maximum benefit of your injection. That's very good to but know. Two weeks, <laughs> yeah, so like two weeks after injections, if you're still like not feeling it or you don't think it's where you want to be, then I really encourage people to come back for a recheck yeah. and not just say, well, when injections don't work. Well, because yeah. maybe we made... Like maybe we made the like primary problem feel better, but now where it's been compensating for so long is a little bit empty. Yeah, and for sure. what you're feeling isn't the same issue. Or the other thing that I see a lot is the person who comes in and they're like, I only want the right hawk injected because that's the one it flexes on. And, you know, maybe the left yeah. flexed a little bit that day, but not as bad. And so I find with those kind of cases, you know, you make the client happy. The left has a little bit of a problem, but the right's the biggest one. You do the right hawk, and then two weeks later, it's like, seems really lame on the left hawk. Now the right one feels better, and the one that's been compensating, you know, is now showing its signs of pain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were talking a little bit about HA. So Colby actually asked from Instagram, what do you think is more beneficial, feeding powder joint supplement or liquid HA, if we're doing some of that preventative stuff? Um, I mean, it's all those products, they're all very different. So, like, generally speaking, like, the powdered supplements have a number of different active ingredients in them, usually, that are put together to kind of address joint health. So, mm-hmm. as long as they're in the right therapeutic concentration, um, we'll see things like glucosamine, chondroitin, MSN. Other ones might have ASU or, like, green lip muscle in it. Yeah. Uh, relative to just oral HA, um, like the liquid, there's one notice, there was one paper that I read that was published that did see an improvement in joints when they were giving 100 milligrams of HA daily for 30 days. But it was difficult for them to say how feeding it resulted in the positive effects, but they did see an improvement in the treatment group. And I don't know that we can say that one ingredient is superior to the other, or if you feed liquid HA, it's better than the powdered. Um, I don't think there's enough comparative research for us to draw those conclusions. Um, a lot of those, the other thing that I always like kind of warn people about is depending on whether it's coming for a drug company or like a nutraceutical company, um, we don't always, with some of the nutraceuticals and stuff like that, there's maybe not as rigorous testing, uh, especially a lot of the stuff that we're just ordering online in bulk. Um, I don't always know that the concentration that they say is in it is actually true. Mm-hmm. Um, just because it hasn't been put through, you know, the standards that are um, products that are coming through like drug companies have been put yeah. through. Mm-hmm. Kind of um, and then, yeah, like it, the regulations are a little bit different on it. 
And I mean, the other thing too is it's really hard for me to say like one is better than the other because it really comes back down to that individual horse kind of thing. I have some yeah. horses that the owners see a huge improvement on, you know, glucosamine. And then I have other horses where glucosamine did nothing. So again, it's like working with that, your whole like healthcare team on your horse to kind of see what works. The other yeah. thing that I always want to caution people about too is um, horses don't always absorb like the bioavailability of the product might not be as good feeding it as if we were to do like injectable HA, mm-hmm. so like a shot of legend once a month versus feeding it orally. Um, but I think like every horse is different. So if you try it and you're not seeing the results, then you need to talk to your veterinarian about, well, what else can we try or should we do something else? And it's easy to get overwhelmed with how many products are on the market. Like I can't keep up with them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. <laughs> um, when- and- Oh, sorry. I was just going to say one last thing. The other thing that I have a really hard time with is sorting out the information of what is real versus what's biased. Like everyone who sells it has a testimonial or has something. So without seeing like research on it or like a white paper or some sort of published study, you know, it's hard to find someone who wants to give you like supplement and nutrition like advice that's not working for the company. Yeah, exactly. So when you are looking for one of these joint supplements, whether it's liquid or powder, what are those concentrations that you want to see in there? <laughs> I don't have a clue without having you don't something in front of me. <laughs> okay, that's <laughs> <Nice try. laughs> something to research. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know. Like, it's, they're, they're also variable because, I mean, the other thing to remember about when you're comparing them is, the thing that people get caught up on is they'll come in and they'll bring me six labels of something and they're like, which one's better? Yeah. And it'll be like 3,000 international units of this in one and, you know, 4,500 international units in the next one. But you have to compare how many grams, what size of scoop are you feeding? Right. Right? So you can put that, you can look at a bottle and be like, oh my gosh, look at how much it has of everything. And then you look at what actually, you know, the scoop is and it's like six times bigger than the portion in the other one. Yeah. So when buying supplements, I always tell people, when they're like comparing, like, I mean, at the end of the day, we all care about price. We want the most economical. We want the best for our horse without, you know, killing our pocketbooks. But figure out what your daily cost is on these supplements. It's, I think when some people come in and they have all these different things, we actually figure it out, you know, that more expensive supplement that has a higher concentration might actually be cheaper in the long run because your cost per day is less. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned legend a little bit in there. So injections like Legend and Adequin, um, what are your thoughts on those? Um, so Legend and Adequin are obviously like brand names. Um, Legend is like our, our, our hyaluronic acid. Um, Adequin actually hasn't been available in Canada since 2015. Oh, really? um, there was something to do about having it. Um, they had to comply to with something for the like for the Canadian inspection on the label, and they didn't want to do it. So if you want to get adequate, you have to get it out of the state. But um, there was a product called Pentasam that was really popular in Australian racetracks. It was kind of made its way into North America over the last couple of years, which is different than adequate, but works kind of similar. Um, and the thing that people really like about Pentasam versus Legend is Legend has to go into the vein. So if you're not comfortable giving an intravenous shot, you're going to have to, like, you know, haul into the vet to get it done or have mm-hmm. someone do it for you. Pentasam um actually is intramuscular so it's a lot more easy to administer and we're seeing a lot of the same benefits that we see from legend they're a little bit different 
in the sense that pentasan, they, they seem to have a bit more studies showing that it does have a little bit of effect on the cartilage. Um, and it also can help break up fibrin in the joints, like some of the chronic inflammation uh, versus legend. I think they're both really great products. And it's just finding that one that might be most suitable for your horse. I often follow up my joint injections and I tell people that it really helps if we get them on one of those two products to help prolong the duration of your joint injections and how long they last. Usually 30 days post injections. I'm like, you should, you know, maybe consider giving a pentathan or legend shot. Okay. Cool. So how do you distinguish, I can't say distinguish today. (laughs) How do you distinguish between muscle and joint soreness? Um, when I do a lameness exam, um, the first thing that I kind of do is I usually take a like a visual of how the horse is standing, where it's looking, do have any asymmetries between the muscles, and then the next thing I do is put my hands on it. I, you know, feel the horse all over and well, it looks like I'm just petting it. Most of the time, I'm using different pressures and feeling different spots to see, you know, reactions. Is there heat? Is there swelling? Um, do we have a fusion in the joint? Um, and then once once they like look at this, how they stand, how they react to palpation, then I watch them move. And I mean, in some cases, like joints and muscle soreness go together, and in other cases, it may be completely separate. So for me, to some degree, I like I kind of do this process of elimination as we work through the exam, as there's so many things to consider. Um, one of the other things that I kind of look at is the history of what the horse does under saddle. So you know, ask lots of questions about how it reacts when you're riding it. You know, does it warm up out of it or does it seem to get worse as we're riding? Um, and then, like, specific to barrel horses, I would say that the most, like, muscle-type issues I see is back soreness and that pain over the SI, over the lumbar, sometimes with the paxial muscles that run down either side of the spine. Um, and, like, those I address with, you know, some veterinary techniques like acupuncture, mesotherapy, shockwave. Uh, sometimes we'll put them on a muscle relaxant like methocarbol and then give you exercises to work on strengthening those muscles. And then a lot of times I work together with other members of your health team, you know, like your physical therapist, your body workers, your chiropractors, so that we can kind of address the issue from like many different aspects, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I like how you're open to all that too, working yeah. with the whole team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think you have to. I think you have to be a team player yeah. or else you're not going to make it very far as a performance veterinarian because I mean it takes so many people to get a horse of high caliber to those to that place that it needs to be yeah Yeah. and keep them there (laughs) yes so is there any way that an owner would know if it's joint or muscle pain just by how it feels or how it moves or it's something that you would have to diagnose or any kind of tips and Uh, tricks that you can like give to owners I think like yes like there's definitely I think you can be able to tell I mean I think when we're dealing with like soft tissue injury you know that that kind of, if it's lameness, like where you bring it out of the stall and it's been resting and it seems down, but then you exercise it for a few minutes and it starts getting worse, well, then we might have kind of a problem. If we have those like minor aches and pains, you know, a little bit of stiffness in some of our older athletes, you know, when you start working them and they warm up out of it, it's usually more likely to be a little bit of arthritis, a little bit of bone pain. They feel better when they start moving. Mm-hmm. But I think for you guys on a day-to-day basis, it's going to be that like body sore, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. they work really hard. Now, they're sore, just like you would be if you had just run a marathon. So I think it's really important they take care of their legs. So, you know, whether it you know, be cold hosing after a run, icing, uh, you know, maybe using a mud poultice, you know, warming them up 
with uh, back on track or standing wraps before events or back on track or hands with blanket to kind of make them feel better. Yeah. Um, I think like every horse again is going to be a little bit different, but you guys know your equine athletes, you know how mm-hmm. they are. I think you're, you know, you can distinguish between that, like they're just body sore when you like, you know, are rubbing down their backs and stuff and they're just tight versus they have a lameness when you're riding them or working them. Mm-hmm. And I think when you start to see the lamenesses, that's when you need to like consult with your veterinarian. But on the just, I'm a little bit sore because I worked, I did three runs this weekend. You know, then it's okay to treat them, you know, with a little bit of rest and maybe some pampering and their hands while we're back on track and, you know, give them that time to recover for those muscles to recover after all that strenuous activity. Mm-hmm. Just like us, if we hit the gym and haven't done it in a while, it's sore for a solid week after. Yeah, you barely walk across <laughs> yeah. the street. But that hasn't happened in quite some time since we started this podcast. Yeah, There's no was... spare time. I came to one workout. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think we've really we done any done since, since we yeah. started this yeah. podcast. That's so funny. <laughs> well, you need to because you need to be fit to ride your horses or else you're doing them a disservice. I know. We were supposed to do that in the new year and then we started the podcast instead. But we need to figure out how to just like, even if it's just the 30 minutes of the day, like, yeah, yeah. the core needs to be strong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If we want them to be these athletes, we better get our yeah. butts in shape. Oh, and and um, I do a lot of like continuing education and I'm, cause I'm really interested in like the physical therapy and the rehabilitation. I've taken a lot of like, extra courses and, you know, visit with other professionals in those areas. And I was talking to a lady who does all the physical therapy on the horses and the riders of the U.S. Olympic team. And she can get them to do their physio protocols with their horses, but getting them to do it for themselves is like the worst thing. <laughs> it doesn't so surprise like, me yet. <laughs> yeah, and so like she actually is pretty cool. She has these videos that shows that like what she found in the rider versus what she found in the horse. You know how if their right lower back hurts and they're putting all their weight on their left hip, well, now they're putting that pressure on that horse's left and they're not sitting center and the horse isn't balanced. And it, it all goes together. And like between the rider and the horse, like yeah. you have to be a team. Yeah. yeah, it ties together with like the the veterinary team and all the equine workers. It ties together with the human team as well. Yeah. They've all got to work together. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. And I, like not to sound like a broken record, but I think that's the key to success is yeah. this you know, that cold collaboration and everyone working together and, you know, everyone trying to be their best without, you know, taking down anybody else. And at the end of the day, we all have the same common goal. We want to do better for ourselves and our horses. Yeah. Yeah. I guess this is our kick in the butt to get back to the gym. The vet's (laughs) telling us to go and get in shape. Yeah. (laughs) Doctor's orders. Yeah. So another common um, problem in the barrel horse world is bleeding. Can you start us off by giving our listeners a little bit of an overview of what bleeding is and how common it is in the barrel horses? Yeah, for sure. So bleeding is the like kind of layman's term for what we call exercise-induced pulmonary hemorrhage. And so what that is is the little capillaries in the lungs first, and we have we have like blood essentially in the lungs. And then so some of the signs that we'll see. Um, you know, they can be from really non-specific, mild to, like, severe. And so they'll kind of can start with, like, coughing after a run, you know, one or two kind of coughs. Um, it can be subtle, like, the horse doesn't want to go into the arena or wants to blow off the barrel and run up the wall. Um, we can have difficulty or prolonged recovery after a run. So, you know, your horse is tied standing to the rail, and the girl who ran after you's horse is kind of standing there, and yours is still puffing and puffing, right? Like that might be a sign that there could be some bleeding going on or some lung inflammation. 
Um, and then, like, I think the more severe type sign that everyone's aware of is, you know, blood out of one or both nostrils post-run. Um, so sometimes in a severe bleed, we'll have, like, gushing of blood out of both nostrils. And then in a really mild bleed, we might just see a trickle out of one nostril. And it might be, like, 40 minutes after the run. And the reason for that is is the body's trying to clear the blood out of the lungs. So there's these little, they call them cilia in the lining of the trachea. And they literally, like, move the blood up the trachea, which then comes into the, you know, nasal cavity and out the nose. And so then how we diagnose it. It kind of depends on, I guess, what we're looking for. So the most common way of diagnosing bleeding, I guess, would be scoping the horse about a half an hour after it runs. So that way you do give time for those moderate, mild bleeds to start working with the trachea. So we pass the, the scope into up the camera up the nose and then through the larynx into the trachea. And we're looking for blood and we score it depending on how much we find. Um, the other things that are really important on that endoscopy is looking to evaluate the upper airway. So the structure of the airway, the flappers, the epiglottis, you know, the soft palate. Um, and then, you know, when we're looking down the trachea, we also seeing mucus. Um, so that's kind of like our, I guess that would be like our primary way of kind of seeing if they bleed after a run. Uh, one of the other ones that we do is called the bronchial alveolar levi. And so we call it a BAL. And what it is, is the pass a tube, like a little white tube. We take it, we sedate your horse pretty heavily and we pass it up the nose and then we put it down the trachea and we put it as far as we can till it lodges in one of the bronchi. And what we do is we fill up a little cuff so then that way we can push fluid down the tube and not have it come back up. And then we pull it back out with some big syringes. And what we're looking for is, you know, inflammatory cells, signs of bleeding. We send it to Dr. Renaud Legulette at the University of Calgary and uh, he's looks at it, and then he makes recommendations. And he's been able to find, you know, chronic bleeders or acute bleeds, you know, within two to three weeks of when the last time they ran. He can tell us if there's signs that it looks like they bleed every time or if it was, like, a one-time event. So I think it's also, like, really valuable information. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then the other thing that we sometimes do with the scope is we'll do what we call a dynamic scope. And we'll give you like a little backpack and then we put a scope down your horse's airway and we watch you make a run so we can see if there's any changes in the upper airway. And does that one, um, well, I guess, so do you have a preference of doing like the scope versus the BAL? You said the scope right after is probably the most efficient and effective. I think, I think if we're just looking for like bleeding, um, right after a run is going to be the most like within 30, like, you know, usually about 30 minutes of scope them. is going to tell us that they bled at that run at that time. Doing a BAL might give us a little bit more information if they're bleeding chronically or if it's just a one-time event that they bled. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the other thing that I didn't really get into that I should have talked about first um, is kind of like what causes bleeding, right? So, so all these horses are bleeding, like why? And so there's kind of, there's kind of two main groups that I kind of lumped are bleeding horses into one of them is going to be inflammatory airways so those are going to be like our allergy horses or horses with inflammation in their lungs so when they're doing physical exercise their lungs when they're inflamed aren't very strong and we're going to have those capillaries break and then we're going to have horses that have like mechanical obstruction so you're making a run and your horse is bleeding but it's because it's got an airway obstruction and now we're having more pressure on those lungs so those airway obstructions can be 
you know, a dorsal, uh, dorsally displaced soft palate, which closes off our airway. Or if you've ever heard about flappers, you know, so the retinoid cartilages are paralyzed and they're not opening to their full capacity. Well, then now we have, you know, an airway obstruction that's putting more, you know, pressure on the lungs. So when we're looking at like the airway obstructions, the dynamic scope is a really great way of um, assessing it. So watching how the upper airway moves while you're riding your horse, while you're asking it to physically exert itself. The scope after exercise is also good. You know, we can see, you know, as well at rest when we're not working, if we have a, you know, if the horse is constantly displacing its palate or we can see that there's paralysis in that flapper, then, you know, then we can like refer you to the dynamic scope or we can try making decisions based on that scope then. And then the other thing is we have a normal upper airway at rest. Your horse is bleeding. Why? Well, then our PL is going to tell us that information about what's actually going on in the lot. Do we have a lot of, you know, organic particulates? Do we have a lot of inflammatory cells? Do we have bacterial cells? And that's where they all kind of come to the same, they come to different conclusions based on what kind of clinical signs your horse is showing, Yeah, if that makes sense. Yep. Oh, for sure. I guess this all goes back to budget, but I mean, it sounds like a BAL in an ideal world would be something good to do almost at the beginning mm -hmm. of a season or once you get in shape for a season. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think with the BAL, if you're, if you can't, there's no vet to scope your horse right after the run and it's kind of been coughing or, you know, not recovering really well, then a BAL is a great one to do if you've ran it within like, you know, the last eight to 10 days, you pull a sample, we send it to Dr. Renault. And then we kind of get to know what's going on in the health of those lungs. And people are like, yep, yep, the horse definitely bled. Or no, it didn't bleed, but it's got lots of inflammatory cells. Or, hey, like, does this horse, is it maybe sick? There looks like there's some bacteria in here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of each horse is, like, unique. And then and then we kind of get those results. And then we can make, like, a tailored plan. Or sometimes if it comes back and we don't have inflammatory cells, we're like, we need to do a scope on this horse. We need to see if there's something that's, like, obstructing its airway. And that's why it's having these respiratory signs because we're not seeing, you know, severe allergies based on our BAL. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what are some preventatives that work to help with bleeders? Well, it kind of goes, again, back down to the, like, what causes your horse to bleed, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. to begin with. So if we're going to talk about, like, the allergy, the lung inflammation group of horses, um, for those ones, I'm really, it's all about, like, control of the dust. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So since working on barrel horses and how much we travel and everything and working with Dr. Renault, um, I really, really encourage everyone to go to his, um, to go to the UCM website and you look at Dr. Renault's horse health webpage. He's okay. got all his recommendations for like, environmental management. So he's really like taught me that like, do not haul your horses with their hay nets. Like everyone's yeah. like, my horse needs to be overdriving. But all we do is we put them in a little tin box and then we put a, a net of hay in front of their nose and we just let them breathe in dust for the two hours they're in the trailer, right? Yeah, that's true. It's not worth it. Uh, or, you know, like not, you know, maybe not bedding the trailers with all that, you know, shavings and dust and straw. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe we fill a little bit stall dry and, you know, we put like nonstick maps or mats or those like hoof grip or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I just that's got one of those in my it. trailer. <laughs> um, if we're in long haul, stopping to feed them versus having it in there. Or if you have mangers, feeding them soaked cubes. Yeah. Um, and then when it, you know, then when we get to the event, like, you know, maybe, you know, our horses are used to being outside and we're staying overnight and we're going to put them in these dusty stalls that they're not used to. 
um, you know, like just being aware of what kind of conditions mm-hmm. and how much dust and everything there. So, you know, if, you know, horses maybe are better outside than inside if we don't have very good, you know, air quality inside. Um, air quality outside, you know, when we're having all those forest fires, like yeah. the smoke in the air can affect our horses. I see way more bleeders when they've been in those kind of, you know, um, exposure to those particulates in the air. Um, and then feeding, how do we feed at home? So are we out on a hay net where the horse gets to chew in and nuzzle its nose in and breathe in all that dust? If that's the case, well, then we either need to fork it in or we need to put a hay net on it to prevent them from doing that. Um, and then some of our horses that have some are prone to these inflammatory. Sometimes we'll pull them off hay completely, put them on hay cube. Or um, there's hay steamers where you can steam their hay so it takes the dust out of it. Um, so for those like allergy inflammatory horses, like the biggest thing for me is going to be environmental management. Just mm-hmm. being aware of where we can try and reduce, you know, the dust the best that we can yeah. in their life. Um, a lot of those ones when they do their um, their BALs, you know, Dr. Renault can actually see the organic particulates in their in their lung cells, right? Because they're so overwhelmed with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually had one that came back with like the most severe inflammation ever, and we couldn't figure it out. And it was it almost seemed like chemical burn of the lungs. And then you talk to the owner; they're from BC. The horse's pasture was on a um, orchard, and they were spraying their pesticides, and it was obviously coming in to the into the air. Oh the horse is breathing it in, and causing chemical burns of the lungs. Oh my Yikes. gosh. So, like, but no one would think that, right? Like, until they're like, why is this horse having such problems? And it's something like that. Um, And then once we kind of have those results or we know that our horse is an allergy type horse, you know, we do the environmental management, and if that's not enough, then we start looking at, um, you know, how we manage them with drugs or, you know, anti-inflammatory, how we, if we use antihistamines, you know, anti-allergens, you know, some of, a lot of my clients, I'm really big into nebulizers. So, um, like, have the FlexiNeb, and they're, you know, using the physiological saline that's, like, helping break up the mucus in their horse's lungs and making them stronger. And then if we do need to treat them, we can use a quarter of the systemic dose that we'd have to give orally or in the muscle or in the vein. We can put that into the nebulizer. So then we don't have any of the, like, side effects, the systemic side effects of using a little bit of steroids because mm-hmm. we're using such a small amount and we're putting it directly in the lock. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's awesome. So, and then for that, and then when it comes to like our obstructive cases, um, depending on how bad they are, you know, we recommend surgical intervention. Um, if it's not something that's surgically, that needs, you know, surgical intervention, um, sometimes we'll use the flare strips so that we're opening the nostrils, getting less air turbulence through. Um, or, uh, some horses that maybe have a bit of a displacing palate issue that's not very severe might run, run with like a tongue tie or a bit that, um, uh, immobilizes the tongue when they run so that it's less likely to displace the palate. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> um, so when it comes to the smoke, what do you re- recommend for people when it's really smoky and like, it's not like you can take them out of the smoke? No, um, we can't take them out of it. So then I just, I recommend you don't ride your horse in that yeah, smoke. Yeah. Um, so like last summer when the air quality was getting really high, but so the racetrack, when it had a air quality index over eight, the races were canceled. Okay. So we just, we, we don't want to, we don't want to stress already fragile lungs by making them run. 
because, you know, they might do good that day, but, you know, the cumulative effects from causing them to run with that inflammation might catch up with them in the future, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just safer to just leave them in the barn, not ask them to exercise. And when the air quality comes back, get back onto your exercise program. Okay. It's probably safer to give them time off. Yeah. So you would recommend if it's over eight, then don't run or... Yeah, or, I would. I would ride, say that's I mean, kind of, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of, I think, I think that's kind of probably the industry standard. Yeah. Um, is eight or higher on the index is just not worth it. Yeah. Okay. Good show. Yeah. Um, and then one other thing. Oh, sorry. Continue. Oh, I was just going to say we actually like stopped riding for a big period of time mm-hmm. last summer because it was so smoky here. Yeah. And of course, when you can't see, it's probably way over eight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, the other thing that I was just going to maybe touch on if we have a minute on the preventative is I get lots of questions on LASIK. Mm-hmm. Yes. When does my horse need to run on LASIK? So once we have a diagnosis and, you know, kind of a treatment plan, then that's usually when we incorporate incorporate LASIK in if we need to. If we can't manage it with just modifications in our program, uh, then there are some cases of horses that need to run on LASIK. Um, I don't like to just put every horse on LASIK. I feel that there's a lot of, um, you know, electrolyte imbalances and things that can happen if we overuse it or use too much. Mm-hmm. So my goal in my practice is always to have them on the lowest dose possible to yeah. prevent them from bleeding. Because on the flip side, if they bleed and now we have all that inflammation in the lungs again, we're kind of starting over. So we kind of have to have a fine line of, you know, using the lowest dose of Lasix when we need to. And then people always ask me, well, how do I use Lasix? And so for me, um, whatever the dose your veterinarian gives you, I usually give it between two and a half and three hours out. And then I tell people to pull your water pail at that time. So that way they're not just rehydrating because the bowl of Lasix is a loop diuretic and it doesn't stop the bleeding. It just reduces their blood volume. So hopefully there's less pressure on those capillaries in the lungs so they don't burst. We take away their water, and then after a run, let them drink. And then I always recommend you have them on an electrolyte. So whether that be like an electrolyte paste or an electrolyte that we add into our feed or an electrolyte that we put into their water uh, post-performance. Okay. And so do you recommend, like, during the barrel season to keep them on an electrolyte every day or just during runs or...? Um, it kind of depends on which electrolyte you're using. It's kind of like when we're talking about supplements, not all of them are the same. So some of them are very concentrated where they're safe to have them on every day. Some of them are like really high sugar volume. So I'm not a huge fan of those ones. And then we have some of them that are super concentrated where we don't want to use them every day. And we just want to give them on days that we're like, we're punishing, um, you know, what we've lost from using LASIK. So again, it kind of depends. Yeah, it's like product specific. The one that I use in clinic all the time um, is the Equestrol brand of electrolytes from Vitiquinol. And on that one, it, it says clearly not to use daily unless performing like strenuous exercise or in cases of where we're giving like LASIK. Those ones are usually giving like three times a week if we're just running a normal horse. Okay. Um, okay, just a sec. <laughs> Oh, I was going to ask, so once you have a horse that's on Lasix, do you think, is there ever any case that they can get healthy enough that they would be able to go off of Lasix and just use all the other preventatives? 
Yeah, absolutely. I've had lots of horses in my practice over the years, like be on Lasix and then transition off when we fix, when we find out the diagnosis and we fix that problem. So horses that had um, a surgical problem that we then do surgery um, and then post-surgery, their airways are open and we don't seem to have the same stress and they can come off Lasix. Or in some of our, you know, like, I feel like a lot of the horses, a lot of them I look at, well, I run him on Lasix because he's a bleeder and I kind of like, you know, when I'm doing my initial exam with like a new client and I'm like, oh, like, why did he bleed? Well, he bleeds. The owner before that told me he bleeds. Okay. So then you start talking to them and you start explaining to them that like there's lots of different reasons. And some of those horses, you know, that are allergy horses or have some lung inflammation, we clear up inciting cause. We get them off that round bill. We run, you know, a course of treatment through them. And then, you know, we get those lungs healthy again and they're able to come off the Lasix. Yeah. <clears throat> so we res- recently read an article that said about 90% of horses performance race horses bleed. Um, do you have uh, any comment on that number from what you've seen? Um, I mean, I definitely think a lot of horses bleed. I think depending on the environment they're in, we might see more horses bleed, you know, so they're, Wherever that study was done was in a place, you know, upstate New York at a racetrack where they have a lot of smog all the time. So they're scoping every horse after a race. You know, maybe that's accurate. Um, you know, maybe when it was smoky up here, it'd be accurate here. And I, or, you know, we're looking at a racing stable where it's dusty, the horses are inside all the time. I don't know that 90% bleed, but I think a lot of them do. And I think there's a lot of subclinical bleeders that we don't recognize, right? Yeah. They don't mm-hmm. cough. They don't have any of those issues. Um, they don't show any of those issues, but, you know, we might soak them, you know, 30 minutes after a run and be surprised that we see a little trickle in there. Or, you know, we're doing, you know, someone wants to just do a BAL to see what their lungs are like. And it's like, oh, like there's actually like chronic signs of like low volume bleeding that they didn't recognize. Yeah. Then, you know, it comes like, is it a clinically relevant problem? I mean, once we find it, you know, we try to find the source of it, but I think there are probably... I would suspect there's way more horses out there that maybe have a bit of an underlying bleeding problem that we don't even know because we've never looked for it. Yeah. And so if we don't know if the horse is doing it consistently, because maybe it does vary run to run or what conditions you're running in, those ones that we do know they could have a problem, do you just, would you consistently treat them for Lasix when you run? Um... I mean, I think if you're not recognizing them have a problem, I don't know that would put them on Lasix to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, usually we're using it when we, we have one that we know we have a problem. We use Lasix, they run better, they're not coughing, they're not bleeding afterwards. But again, I'm always trying to pair that with treating what's causing the bleeding, right? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, sometimes it's as simple as like the owner switch you know, hay and it's a little bit dusty and it's out on a round bale and it's the second dusty bale it's had. Well, it's never had a lung problem before and now it's got issues and we clean up the inciting cause it goes away. And then, I mean, we have those other horses that are just chronic, always bleed no matter what we do, but we try our best to make the lungs as healthy as we can. The way the healthier the lungs are, the less stress on them, the less likelihood of bleeding. And if we can get that bleeding to like a minimally manageable amount, then, I mean, we're still performing to our, you know, maximum potential. Mm-hmm. 
and there's lots of non um like non-medicinal type products Mm -hmm. um that i've seen people give to try and help you know lung inflammation build healthy lungs and again i think it goes down to what works for each horse right yeah so there's definitely some supplements that definitely you know promote a healthier immune system a stronger lung um and again just finding that one because just because it works for one horse doesn't mean it works for your horse yeah very mm-hmm. true. And I think it's tempting for people to just try and treat them for bleeding, even if they don't know for sure, because I think maybe cost-wise it's better, but I think in the long run it's better just to get, to get them, yeah, investigate so you know the actual reason mm-hmm. if they are bleeding. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, a bottle of Lasix might only be $70 or whatever it is, but, I mean, the, the effects on the horse long term if we're you know you know when racehorses when we talk about racehorses that believe that are on LASIK I mean they have like one race every two to three weeks yeah. I mean our barrel horse some of our girls are hitting three rodeos in a weekend or you know four jackpots like I mean we're asking a lot of them yeah. so then if we're using LASIK you know three four times a week I mean eventually the cumulative effect starts to add up yeah mm-hmm. for sure so um, in a barrel horse that is on Lasix consistently rodeoing every year, like what is, what are the effects long-term? Do you think it shortens their performance life? No, I think it just comes down to making sure that we're rehydrating them properly and balancing their electrolytes. So making okay. sure that they're drinking. Um, and then paying attention to, you know, if we have, four runs in two days, maybe we give the horse a break and we use another one, right? Rather than, yeah. you know, using double doses of Lasix on that day or, you know, if the runs are really close together, you know, only giving a short sip of water yeah. and then making your other run versus, you know, letting them, you know, drink fully and then try to give them Lasix again. Yeah, for sure. Um, and that's where, like, every horse is different. So I don't want someone to, like, take that as, me trying to give advice I think it's best if you work with your veterinarian about the kind of best protocol for how we manage those back-to-back runs you know how you know based on the health of the horse and the hydration level and what everything looks like like should you know should we be having a second horse in the trailer for some of those days and maybe running blood work and electrolytes like so a lot of my long-term LASIK clients that you know they're managing other problems but we still have to use LASIK yeah we definitely do do you know, a CBC chemistry and electrolytes, you know, make sure that we're not seeing, a, you know, bad effects on our kidneys and yeah. making sure that their electrolytes are within normal range. Yeah, for sure. Back when we were talking about when you give the Lasix before a run and pulling the H2O at the same time <laughs> or pulling the water at the same time, um, do you also recommend pulling feed at that time as well? Um, I think that's a personal preference. I definitely have clients that pull feed and water. Okay. And then I have other clients that let them have both. Um, I mean, I think pulling feed's not a bad idea. Um, like with my racehorses, they get their feed pulled. Um, but if they're not on Lasix, they get to have their water up until performance time. Especially in a hot day, I don't ever take away the water. Um, maybe that's just my own personal opinion. But if they're on Lasix, absolutely, I yeah. pull water. Um, okay. And then, you know, somewhere between... You know, one to three hours pre-performance, most people, I think, take away feed. But then I do have lots of people who keep it in front of them. And I don't know that there's, maybe there's some scientific article that says one way or the other, but I don't 
I don't know. I think it's personal preference. Okay. Yeah, like the reason I was wondering is if they have an empty stomach, is that, do they tend to be more prone to ulcers when you run them on an empty Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, there's definitely theories on horses that they call, you know, acid splash. So they're they're running and they're they have stomach acid in their stomach and it splashes up onto um, the the upper part of the stomach and it you know starts to hurt or cause problems. Yeah. Um. So maybe having feed in there would reduce that. But then I mean, there's other people that would argue that if you ate a heavy meal and then tried to run a sprint, <laughs> it's more difficult, yeah. right? And I think it's different because even people, some people can't eat before they work out. Mm-hmm. And some people need to eat before they work out. Yeah. yeah. I need to eat and not I work mean, out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> and that's why I think, like, horses are kind of the same. Like, they're their own individuals. And, yeah. You know, if there was, like, a magic formula to stop ulcers, <laughs> stop bleeding, stop lameness, like, someone would be a multimillionaire uh, or a billionaire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so but they don't. Yeah. And that's what makes my job fun is that it's kind of a puzzle, right? Yeah, like, I sure. love looking at a horse and figuring it out and, you know, getting to try different things and be like, hey, let's try, you know, taking this away or doing this and seeing what works for that individual so that way the client and the horse both have satisfaction. Yeah. For sure. Okay, Jessica, 2020 goal, get that magic potion that fixes everything. (laughs) Working on it. Trust me, I'd pay off some student debt pretty quick. (laughs) No doubt. 100%. All right, Rider Dies, head on over to Dynamic Equine and check out what they have to offer on that page. The Beamer Blanket is one of those things, and we are such believers in the Beamer. Go check it out. All right, so we covered a few other topics. Now we're going to move into ulcers. Can you give us a little bit of like an overview on ulcers and maybe some signs or symptoms? Yeah, for sure. So there's, in my mind, there's kind of two different types of ulcers. So we have gastric ulcers. And we have hindgut ulcers, which are the, so I guess gastric ulcers are what affect the actual stomach. And then hindgut ulcers are what affect the large intestine. Mm-hmm. And so depending on which type of ulcer your horse has, we might see different clinical symptoms. Uh, with gastric ulcers, my personal kind of experience with it is I tend to find horses that are kind of picky with their feed. So they'll, they'll even like um, sift through the hay and they'll, they'll leave the longer, more skinny stuff and they'll eat like the softer pieces. Okay. Um, we might have behavior problems. Uh, people will complain to me that their horse seems angry or just not themselves, maybe a little bit more aggressive than usual. Um, they maybe won't, don't want to go into the arena. Um, mm-hmm. So when we were talking about bleeding earlier, um, when we talk about horses that don't want to go into the arena, um, it's kind of, for me, two of those things that kind of come to my head if they're not sore is do we have an ulcer problem or do we have a bleeding problem? Mm-hmm. Um, and then... We'll find ones that are anxious or stressed, um, especially when they're getting worked under saddle. Um, and then a lot of times people come in and they'll say that their horse has been totally fine. And then now they're being reactive to being the cinch done up. Um, or maybe they don't like being brushed. And then in severe cases, we tend to see um, poor hair coat. Uh, poor hair coat. They might have trouble keeping weight on. Um, and then in the most severe cases, we might actually see horses that exhibit um, colic symptoms. Um, and then with the hind gut, so those are ulcers in the colon. Uh, I tend to see horses that are maybe gassy. Um, maybe they don't like their flank brush. Um, they have diarrhea. Again, they might have intermittent colic symptoms. 
And those kind of horses, I tend to find that they do really well on, like, grass or hay cubes. But they maybe have more symptoms when they're on, like, hay. Hmm. And how common would you say ulcers are in our performance horses? Um, I think they're becoming relatively very common. Mm -hmm. I don't know if maybe they're, I think they are more common than before. Or maybe we just, we know to look for it now. Like maybe 15 years ago, we weren't thinking of ulcers as a problem to some of these like, you know, minor performance issues. Mm -hmm. I think maybe we were catching like more severe cases. But I mean, now when with our athletes that we're treating, I mean, you guys are with them 24-7, you're riding and you know them. Like you, like my clients know instantly when their horse is just even like something's just not right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think sometimes that's when we find, um, you know, look at ulcers. Um, I and I think we see it a lot more in our like rodeo and competition horses, just because those horses have a lot of travel, a lot of high stress um, situations. Um, you know, like really stressful arenas. And, um, there's just a lot more pressure on them. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe the other reason why we're seeing it is diagnostic and treatment have become cheaper. So I think people are now investigating those symptoms maybe sooner than they did in the past. Yeah. Um, so not because it's, you know, less common. It's just it's become more of something that's on our checklist when we're doing, you know, our routine health of our performance courses. And do you think there's usually a specific cause for ulcers or are some horses maybe just more genetically predisposed to it? Um, I think it's a really it's a case by case kind of scenario. Um, I definitely do find that some of my like younger, more anxious, more high stress, more nervous type horses are very more likely to have ulcers mm-hmm. than you know like the seasoned rodeo horse that doesn't have a care in the world, been there, done that kind of horse. Yeah, one. for sure. And I think lifestyle also plays a huge role in it too. So our horses that are you know more naturally grazing. Um, eating all the time, turnout, maybe have a less, lesser, like lesser chance of it having them mm-hmm. than our horses that are like trailered all the time, live in box stalls, you know, fed a red, like a very um, disciplined diet of like, you know, two flights in the morning, two flights at lunch. Yeah. Um, you know, again, at supper, whereas I think like maybe our horses that are on like a full feed net or grazing because their stomach acid constantly like working against something mm-hmm. that we don't, tend to see as many issues with those horses okay and is there like certain types of feed that kind of help uh combat ulcers like alfalfa is one that people recommend yeah i've read a couple papers that talk about um alfalfa um and its incidences on like decreasing um ulcers mm-hmm. i don't know that i've ever really like kind of played around with like different feeds for it i know that some feeds maybe trigger it in some horses whereas other feeds don't trigger it trigger it in a different horse okay. so i think it's kind of like variable mm-hmm. um alfalfa though i think that it does have it it has its like benefits towards ulcers but i think we also have to be careful that it's a hotter feed yeah we can sometimes see like side effects with it and okay. horses that are on really high calcium diets are more prone to getting you know um like bladder stones and things like oh, that okay yeah harder on their kidneys and stuff so when you are suspecting ulcers or owners are suspecting ulcers what do you recommend to diagnose? Do you like to scope right away or do you do blood work? Again, it's a case-by-case basis. Um, if we're talking stomach ulcers, then 
the definitive diagnosis for stomach ulcers is a gastroscope. So that's where we take um, a three-meter scope and we pass it through the nose down into the esophagus. And then we, um, we fill the stomach with air um, after we fasted the patient. And we want to look at the surfaces of the stomach and into the small intestine to look for like ulcers or lesions. Um, so the stomach has two portions to it. They have a glandular portion and a non-glandular. Um, and then we have a line between the two of them. And we tend to see a lot of ulcers around that like line. Um, and we can see like, you know, if a horse has had, you know, ulcers in the past that are maybe healing or has had some inflammation in there, just based on what the tissues look like. Mm-hmm. So if we don't see actual ulcers, sometimes we'll see like hyperkeratosis um, on the non-glandular portion, which kind of gives us like either our ulcers are healing or they've had them. Um, gastroscope usually needs to be done in clinic. I've been looking. Um, there is some portable gastroscopes that are mm-hmm. kind of on the market now. Um, so on my wish list, would you get <laughs> one of those? Yeah. So that way, when we're talking about it, it's just easy enough to like book them in and have it done, you know, remotely. Um, we usually need to fast them. Um, so it's, it's not something that we can just like do day of. Because if you go in there when they're full of speed, you don't really see anything. Yeah. Um, and then we do blood work too. So blood work can tell us about like red blood cell count. Uh, you know, if they have bleeding ulcers, it can tell us what's their protein. Are they losing protein through the gut? Mm-hmm. Um, with the hind gut, I tend to do a lot of blood work. Um, sometimes I'll ultrasound like intestinal thickness. Um, there is a test out there that checks for blood in the manure and protein in the manure. Oh, okay. I don't know that I'm not. I think they work. I don't know if they're super specific. The science behind them, I haven't been completely sold on. Okay. Um, I know some of my clients definitely like using them because they're a really simple test where they just mix the manure and it comes back like, yes, gastric ulcers yeah. or yeah. yes, time gut ulcers. Um, I haven't really used a ton of them, so I can't speak to that, but I know mm-hmm. they're out there. Okay. Um, and then for hind gut ulcers, they kind of have a cool thing coming out. Um, it's a camera that you feed your horse and okay. just, they eat it. And then it takes, it's got like a little battery in it and it takes pictures um, throughout the whole digestive tract and then they poop it out. And so then you save their poop and then the vet comes and they x-ray the pile of poop and um, the x-ray, it shows up on x-ray. So then we're able to find the tiny little camera. Oh my goodness. We get the images. That's cool. And see, I've had one client um, do it with a specialist. So that's kind of cool. And Mm -hmm. I think as it becomes like more cost effective that maybe like more clients would be inclined to see uh, what's going on in their horse's digestive tract mm-hmm. because we can't our three meter scope and some horses will just get to like the start of the of the small intestine yeah so we don't get to see any of the other tissue um so that's why hind gut ulcers to get a definitive diagnosis is a little bit more difficult mm-hmm. um and then you know those are kind of the diagnostics and i always recommend that we like do appropriate diagnostics to have a diagnosis and then treat appropriately. But sometimes if if we just can't do any of those other things, we treat them based on clinical signs yeah. and their symptoms, right? Okay. So, you know, if a horse that's now experiencing like behavioral issues and like it's stinchy, reactive to their like, you know, acupuncture ulcer point and kind of mm-hmm. fits a lot of the symptoms, sometimes we'll just go ahead and treat them because it's not feasible for the owner to haul them in for a scope or, you know, we're somewhere where we can't do blood work right away. Um, yeah and then obviously if they don't improve then they have to come to the clinic for a full workup yeah usually when you start treating them they'll 
they'll show a reduction in symptoms pretty quick, won't they? Usually. I've had really good success with horses that um, respond really well. Um, so when it comes to treating them, I find that the brand name Gastrogard, I tend to have a little bit more success with than the generic, okay. um, depending on the severity of the ulcers. Um, and with the with the Gastrogard, with the brand name stuff, they do have um, the company backed it that if I'm scoped 28 days later, they still have ulcers, like they'll pay for some more additional treatment. Oh, okay. Hmm. Whereas you don't have that, you know, guarantee with the generic, but obviously, you know, economics play a role into it. So sometimes we have to use compounded omeprazole. So omeprazole mm-hmm. is the active ingredient in Gastrogard, but Gastrogard has like a proprietary um, formulation yeah. that um, isn't on the market yet. Like, so they still have like the secrets behind it. So mm-hmm. the compounded versions just aren't the same. So if a person was to do, like, because if you were to get that refund, say if you did a full treatment with a GastroGuard, is it normally like a, a full tube per day? Yeah. So for that deal, they require, um, like, the way that they stand behind their product is one full tube for 28 days mm-hmm. to gotcha. treat gastric ulcers. So it does get pricey. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've done that protocol in hundreds of horses. Um, and most of them respond, right, and do quite well. Then you scope them and the, the ulcers are gone. Mm-hmm. So the product definitely works. Yeah. Um, I have had a few horses, though, um, and even ones that have sent to, you know, specialists who specialize in internal medicine where they have such bad ulcers, you know, going into their small intestine and the stomach that's like 28 days of GastroGuard, 60 days of GastroGuard, and it's still not even healed all the way. Yeah. Because the way that GastroGuard works and the Meprazole works is it actually it decreases um, its softer um, H2 proton pump, and mm-hmm. so it actually decreases your stomach acid, right? Yeah. So it, as it treats, the reason it's treating is it's slowing down the stomach acid. So horses make stomach acid, you know, 24 hours a day, and then when they get stressed, it increases more. Mm-hmm. Or um, sometimes we'll see horses that are, you know, stressed or haven't ate, and then they exercise, they get what we call acid splash, so it's splashing up onto the portion of their stomach where normally they don't have stomach acid. Um, mm. So the gastroguard just slows, like, slows down that production of stomach acid. So those ulcers can heal because they can't heal when they're in that acidic environment. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And so, yeah, so, I mean, it kind of depends. Each horse is, you know, different. But, yeah, so if people can't afford to do the full tube, it's obviously case-by-case. Yeah. Uh, but I have found that, you know, sometimes we can do a full tube for a shorter period of time and then go to a half tube and then down to a quarter, like a third of a tube. Mm-hmm. Or we'll start them on GastroGuard, switch them to them at Brazil, like the generic. Um, or if the budget only allows generic, I mean, sometimes that's all we do. Yeah. Or we have those chronic cases where we know that we're going to be hauling lots and then get stressed. So then we put them on, you know, just as a, as a preventative. We put them on, you know, a dose of the of the generic or a small dose of the tube. And anecdotally, it seems to work. I've had success with horses, you know, as a preventative on a quarter tube of GastroGuard versus a full tube, right? But again, yeah. it's case by case. It's so hard. Every horse is different, so I can't just tell you, mm-hmm. you know, like, this is my protocol. 
because it changes based on the severity of the ulcers, the signs they're showing, and how they respond to treatment. Yeah, for sure. So what are some products that work to cure ulcers? Well, so like the gastroguard that we just talked about, that would be for like stomach ulcers. Um, sometimes, um, so then we can like use the meprazole. So for stomach ulcers, that's kind of like the end-all be-all. Like it's the only thing to stop the acid production. Um, with hindgut ulcers, um, we usually treat them with other like, we sometimes will change their diet and put them on like short-chain fibers. Uh, we might treat them with a drug called sacralophate. So sacralophate, um, we can either get it compounded in a liquid or we get the human pills and we, they dissolve really easily and we put so many pills, depending on the size of your horse, in a syringe of water and like shoot in their mouth like, you know, two to four times a day. Um, and what sacralophate does is it, it acts like a coating to the stomach and the, and the, it can get through and it's activated through the stomach acid so it actually can get to the hindgut. And when it gets to the hindgut, it can, um, it acts like a, like a band-aid over where it sticks to where those ulcers are. And then because, you know, the, we treat them for so many days and that ulcer's got that coating on it, it gets, the, the tissue gets to heal underneath it because it can't heal when it's, you know, in the environment alone, right? So we, we put like a band-aid on it, it heals underneath it. Um, with hindgut, sometimes we'll even use like misoprostol. It's another, um, ulcer medication. And I mean, and sometimes stomach ulcers will also use sacralizate or mesoprostol depending on, you know, every patient's a little bit different. Um, hindgut ulcers, I also sometimes treat with um, different supplements. So Kentucky Equine Research makes one called Equister or Right Track. Um, there's lots of science behind it. And what they are is they they're buffer, they buffer the stomach content. And so they're kind of like a hindgut buffer. They change the pH and the everything can like kind of heal in it. Um, I've had lots of success with those ones. And I mean, those are just two examples. Like I'm sure there's other um, hindgut buffers out there, yeah. but I tend to use supplements more for like the hindgut ulcer for like curing. Uh, whereas when it comes to like stomach ulcers, I think all those supplements that are out there are fine as like prevention or maybe after we've treated, but not, you know, not until we have them healed. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So when, when you have healed up the ulcers and they're going to go off of these medications, do you recommend anything um, like, I don't know, any herbs or anything like that that you can put them on just to try Consistently and, prevent? Yeah. yeah. Or is it just the omeprazole like, as a prevention if you're going in stressful areas? Well, I think... You know, similarly to when we were talking about joint health earlier, yeah. that unfortunately there's not a cure-all. So yeah. It's going to be finding what works for your horse, and what works for your horse might not work for the other horse. Yeah. Um, so because they produce stomach acid constantly, that's why we have such difficulty in completely preventing ulcers. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the things that people do is we feed little and often. So if our horse can't have, like, the type of management where it's out grazing all day long and picking away at feed. Um, we might feed them smaller meals rather than feed them like two bigger meals, mm-hmm. just so that way that their stomach, you know, is working and has something, you know, so it's not just building and accumulating stomach acid. Um, I always recommend a really good deworming protocol, especially a protocol that gets bots. So bots are those, they come from those little eggs that we see all over a horse's legs in the fall. Yeah. Um, the sticky little ones that don't come off and then the horses lick them 
and they get them and they come in and they stay attached in the stomach. And so then they grow to like adult larvae in there. Um, so a lot of times when I scope these horses, you put the scope down there and like, oh, hello, we have friends, you know, like yeah. they're all waving at you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I recommend that we deworm with an ivermectin or a moxidectin product, you know, after the first fall, like uh, frost, um, just so that we know that we're killing those lots. Because after the frost, we're probably not going to have um, those egg problem anymore. Yeah. So if we worm them then, then we know that we're kind of clearing them out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for prevention, like we might be able to feed supplements that have like the ones that have like pectin in them, Boehringer makes uh, Pernutrin, which is a really cool one. Um, that people feed as like a prevention. Um, so that one has pectin. Some people feed um, activated charcoal type supplements. Okay. Uh, so I think Comfort Gut is one of them. It's the black stuff mm-hmm. that just gets everywhere. But, you know, when it works for some horses, yeah. the thing is, is if you're feeding a product like Comfort Gut, it tends to coat the digestive tract and they maybe don't absorb as well if you're feeding other medications. Oh, um, yeah. So again, so like the things that like every horse is a little bit different. Um, some people like, there's different clays that people feed. Um, Ronan Cole has their stomach um, herb that people really like. Um, like like there's so clay. many. Like, yeah. 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 yeah like green clay. Yeah. Green clay, like, again, like, good for prevention if it works for your horse, right? Yeah. Every horse is going to be different. Um, I think that if, but what I always caution people is if you're like, my horse has ulcers or it's demonstrating signs of ulcers. Um, sometimes just feeding them the supplement, not, it's probably not enough. It's not enough to cure them. Yeah. So like spend the money, treat them and then put them on, um, you know, then you can play around different supplements to see which ones make them feel the best. Um, and then people will notice that those, when they finish the ulcer guard and, or the gastro guard and they put them on to these supplements, you know, the signs aren't reoccurring. Right. Yeah. Um, And then there's some people that we put them on a Meprazole, you know, just for stressful events. So like when they're being trailered. Or when they're at an event, you know, we might give uh, a preventative dose of Gastrogard or Meprazole at that point um, mm-hmm. to help them. Um, I think, I mean, there's Astera, there's Acid FX, those ones, you know, people tend to give, you know, like pre-race, you know, pre-event, um, kind of like to buffer the stomach, make them feel a little bit better. Yeah. And I have a question. So, oh, sorry. Yeah. No, what's your question? So when it comes to feeding small meals to make sure there's always food in there, what's the longest time they should go without food? Like, for example, Um, sorry. Oh, continue. What's your example? I was going to say, for example, um, if you have a horse on Lasix and you say you, you give them Lasix four hours before you run and you typically pull their water and feed, is that too long? To be without food? No, I think that'd be fine. I mean, like, everyone kind of has a different protocol, but I mean, like, that three hour before pull feed, pull water, yeah. if they're on light six, is probably kind of the norm. I think it goes back to, like, if you were, you know, running a marathon, you probably would want to have a full stomach. I mean, you need to be, like, you need to have the nutrition and the energy to do your job. Yeah. But if you, you know, want to go, if you eat, like, turkey dinner and then you want to go running you just don't feel good yeah so i think like that's kind of where we've adopted that for horses i don't know i mean they can't tell us if they don't feel good but i imagine they don't want to compete on a full stomach yeah. either but i think i i think it's wrong to like you know pull the feed in the morning when you head to a jackpot or a rodeo and then not feed them so you get home yeah I think, okay you know, so you and can that- let them have a little bit when you get there 
have a bucket, yeah. you know, and then, you know, take it away a couple hours before and then after the run, if they want to eat and drink, they can. Okay. And just like a couple hours isn't long enough to empty their stomachs. So there would be, um, acid splashing I mean, around in there causing ulcers. I mean, it might. And that's where like, I, I don't know enough about that to actually know. Okay. Um, because that, that's the one thing is like, some people are like, well, acid splash. So do you feed them beforehand? Yeah. Um, I just, you know, I think it's kind of like, you don't want them to be like starved out yeah. from feed, but you know, you know, if they get a little bit of a nibble of hay, well, they're at the trailer nibbling away, but I wouldn't want to feed them their mash. Yeah. For you know, sure. right before you, mm-hmm. you know, go kind of yeah. thing. Um, yeah, I don't actually know. Like, I don't, I think everyone's different. Like I definitely yeah. have clients that, you know, I have clients, some clients that pull feed earlier than other ones. I mean, I have some clients that even if the horse isn't on like six and six, I'm pulling the water. Whereas I've lots of clients who leave the water 24-7 in front of them, right? Yeah, and I guess that'd probably, again, just be something that you would have to pay attention to your horse and see how they feel either way. Well, exactly. Like, if you feed them and you're like, oh, they didn't feel good or sluggish or something yeah. like that. Okay. I think, like, small feeding, like, a small feeding is okay, but I don't, personally, I wouldn't feed any of my horses, like, a huge, um, you know, their mass or anything like that, like, right before yeah. exercise. You know, half an hour before, you know, probably would be too close to, like, you know, so maybe that's two hours. But I, actually, mm-hmm. I don't know if there is, like, a hard rule on it. I think yeah. you could probably ask every single person I interview, <laughs> yeah. and they might all have a different opinion, right? Yeah, I don't know exactly. if there is a science to it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I wouldn't want to run real far and real fast on when I was, when I'm really full. So. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, working out in the morning, I'll have a little bite before I work out, but I don't want to eat a whole. Yeah, I don't eat anything. Yeah. I can't even eat. like when I ride before if I yeah. eat something before I ride I have like the worst cramps ever oh yeah. really yeah 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 I guess like I wouldn't want to <laughs> no. like I just personally I mean not that I tend to do a lot of that running stuff but if I was gonna start I'd probably starve out first yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I mean maybe that's why I don't exercise as often as you know it's just too tempting to wean myself off yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> Like, oh, like, I could eat that or I could exercise. <laughs> I'm with you there. I've been eating way too much on this, like, self-seclusion. Oh, yeah. Quarantine isolation. I've well, been... we bought a big bag of mini eggs and we made a rule we're only allowed four per day. <laughs> or else they're gone in, like, two days. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, like, totally ran out of groceries. And I have been making soup for the past week. And I think, like, if I have soup again, I'm going to you like <laughs> i cannot wait to go to the grocery store tomorrow and actually buy like everything all the steaks all the freaking chicken because if i have vegetable noodle lentil soup again i'm gonna puke. <laughs> oh my gosh no that's funny yeah no it's definitely weird with how people are buying things and what yeah. our time is like now that we're not as busy with our equine activity yeah mm-hmm well, I guess that kind of wraps yeah. up our questions. Um, normally, we ask our guests if they have any like funny or embarrassing or hilarious stories from from the road at all. Do you have any have any stories in your back pocket you'd like to share? Oh, well, I got a lot, but I don't know if they're. Uh, <laughs> if you want to share them, <laughs> I feel like some of those like rodeo trail stories if they stay there. Yeah. Uh, I do. I have. I actually. I have kind of an amusing thing that happened this week in the clinic. Yeah. So sure. I'm, I'm like performance horse veterinarian. Like that's what I do. 
And with everything going on, um, you know, like the clinic's kind of been like restructured a little bit and I've had to see some, maybe some small animal cases and like, I'm not a very good father dog vet. <laughs> um, so these people came in and I think with this whole pandemic, like it kind of just brings out a lot of like panic and stress in people mm-hmm. and they come in with their animals and they're unvaccinated, but they feel like they should vaccinate them now. Um, side note, coronavirus for dogs and horses and cows is completely different than the coronavirus <laughs> for humans. Um, regardless, people still want to come in and vaccinate their animals to coronavirus, even though, I mean, we highly suggest that you do it. It's just, it, it causes diarrhea in your pets. It doesn't cause like respiratory signs. Um, so they come in with these animals and I'm like doing my physical exam and the lady, it's like this giant, like 20 pound cat on a leash. Oh my goodness. And they're like, they're like we need to, um, we need to get a letter saying that the cat is spayed for the registration for the town office. And I was like, oh, okay. And they're like, yeah, we like, we just found her, had her like four years. Uh, could you like identify that she's spayed? And I'm like, well, I can't just write that without knowing. And she's like, well, she doesn't come into heat. And I'm like, well, she must be spayed. So I like flipped this like, <laughs> they had a cat on its back. I like spayed its abdomen. They <laughs> can't find it. So then I call in one of my other texts and she's like looking and I'm like, hey, get the ultrasound. Like, we're going to have to ultrasound it. And I'm telling these people that the cat's probably not spayed and we're going to have to do surgery. And they're like, oh my, like, oh God, like we've had it for four years. How have we not done this? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> so then I get one of the girls to come get the ultrasound on the other text. And she's like a very competent small animal tech. Like if I'm doing small animal, you want her working yeah. with me because she knows more than me. And she like looks at the cat and she looks at me and she's like, kind of gives me that look like, are you for real right now? <laughs> and I'm like, I just need to identify this cat as a spay incision. Like, you know, that it's a female that's been altered. And she like looks at me and she's like, it has a penis. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. So then these people are like, oh my God, we've had this cat for four years and we didn't know it was a boy. <laughs> oh my God. That's, that's so awesome. funny. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm like, I'm like, we need to ultrasound, we need to do this, we need to do that. I never thought to look for external genitalia. Yeah, no kidding. Oh my god. <laughs> so well, that yeah. is why you don't want to bring your cat to me, but you should bring your horse to me. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, you're an awesome horse vet. <laughs> <laughs> I have an embarrassing story about bringing a dog to the vet. So this is probably one of the dumbest things I've ever done in my whole life. But I've never had a dog and. Uh, Cole had a dog so I was like really worried about this thing having ticks and he's like a big 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 dog so I like took the day off work because like I like literally have no clue about dogs and I bring this thing to the vet because I found like six black like tick looking things on his belly and I was just like oh my god like this dog has ticks like this is disgusting blah 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 but he's he was just outside like a yard one anyway so yeah. just, like whatever and so I like take the whole day off work because um, I went to a vet in like a nearby town. <laughs> I went there and I dropped him off and I'm like, hey, like this dog has ticks, like I need whatever. And so they're like checking him out. They're like, oh yeah, he has ticks, all right. And I was, he has, they're like, he has six of them. And I was like, I knew it. That's how many I counted. They were his nipples. Like <laughs> I didn't know my dog had nipples. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So, Super embarrassing. It's probably a good thing. Kara, too. So she had like twice. <laughs> it's a good thing that you uh, didn't bring them to me. I would have been like, we need to remove these ticks surgically. 
<laughs> oh my goodness. That's so This is a little ridiculous. <laughs> cool. So where can people find you like um like your vet clinic online or find you online? I know that we find you on Facebook whenever you're coming up north, but where is a good place for people to look for you? Um, okay, so I kind of travel all over Western Canada. So I'm licensed in BC, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. Um, the best place is to probably touch base uh, with my vet clinic. So we're located in Red Deer, Alberta Veterinary Center. We're on Facebook, we're online, uh, we have a website, or you can call the clinic at 403-347-1711. Um, they usually have somewhat of an idea of where I am. I am not maybe the most organized all the time. Uh, so once we kind of identify which area the people are in, then I usually have a contact who's more organized for me in that area who kind of just takes care of like, you know, like letting my people know. And we kind of have like a, you know, sometimes like Facebook, some of my clients have like Facebook groups or we may email out a certain location that I'm going to be there at a certain time. Um, but normally when people first call, we just put them on like a, a list. If they're not hauling, if they're hauling to the clinic, then it's easy to book in. But if they want to be seen in like a certain location, we usually just kind of like write down everyone's like information on a wait list. And then as I kind of plan my travels for the month, we call people and like swap them in depending on which arenas I'm at. Cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely a neat service that you offer because for us being way up here in the north, it's really nice being able to to see you way closer to home. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, it's super nice. Like I didn't think that I would like, I knew that I liked like the wagons and the rodeo aspect of it and kind of traveling all summer. But I've really grown to love like the like monthly travels. Oh, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Like, I mean, the horse community is pretty small, and the kind of clients I have, I develop long term relationships with. So there's not a lot of clients where I just see them, you know, like once a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of these clients I'm seeing like once a month, yeah. twice a month, depending on, you know, and like during rodeo season, I might be seeing them weekly or daily, depending on what's going on. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's kind of. I like going to the different places because it's like catching up with the friends and it's good. It's, I am very lucky to have a job like I do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Probably nice to get out of the office and hit the road as well. Yeah. See some new- <laughs> totally. And like with this coronavirus hitting and now things kind of changing the schedule a little bit. So normally all of March, all of April, I'm booked like solid like every single day, pretty much usually from March till September. I don't take a day off because I do all the spring getting everyone together. And then, like, wagon season hits and rodeos hit, and it's just nonstop. So, with everything changing, like, yesterday and today, I've been, like, kind of at home. So, like, I ran out of things to do. So, I, like, made my parents lasagna. And, like, now I'm attempting to, like, make donuts <laughs> because Lacey McElhaney online shared these, like, awesome pictures. And I was like, I can do it. <laughs> and uh, I am not, obviously, home a lot. And I don't have a lot of kitchen stuff. So, I didn't have a big enough bowl. So I had a new sharp bucket that had nothing in it that was clean that I made my dough in it while I was talking to you guys. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> Whatever works. A horse girl always yeah, has a I am not a bucket. baker either. I suck at baking. I don't know. It rose. So I like, I did something right. <laughs> yeah, no well, kidding. Good. I made cinnamon buns for the first time in my life a couple days ago, actually. Yep. Did you? Yeah, and they worked out pretty good. And those are more complicated. I think the last time I baked something was an apple crisp and I put it in the oven and it came out still with like the flour and everything was separated. (laughs) And Cole's like, what is this? I was like, a deconstructed apple crisp. (laughs) 
I don't know. <laughs> Shit. Well, clearly this coronavirus thing, we need to get ahead of it because we're not going to survive if we don't get back to our horses. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, no. It was actually like, so funny. Like, um, I was talking because my, my mare is not with me right now. She's at a trainer for, like, she's mm-hmm. going to be there for like six weeks. But, um, I was looking at Cole. I was like, oh, I was like, I could like see myself like having a kid, like whatever. He's, I was like, why am I feeling this way? He's like, it's because you don't have your horse. And I was like, yep, <laughs> that's why. <laughs> oh my goodness. I will stick to trying to make donuts. Um, you can do the kid making. <laughs> Well, no, I think I'm good. <laughs> it brought me down to reality a little bit when she's like, your horse is gone. That's why I was like, that's so true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Way more spare time. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank thanks again for taking some time out of your evening today and mm-hmm. chatting with us. And hopefully we can con you into coming back on again because I think there's yeah, so absolutely. many more avenues we could take it down. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to find out the colostrum answer for next time. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, well, thank you, and have a good night. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we really hope you enjoyed that episode. Yes, and make sure that you subscribe to this podcast because the more subscriptions and the more times you tell a friend, the more we are able to bring you content of this caliber. Uh, So yeah, leave us a review, tell a friend, and find us on Instagram and Facebook at Horsepore Podcast. And as always, get rich or ride trying. (laughs) 